And boom. There you are. I'm in. Okay, let me let me hang up on you. Now. All right, man. Sounds good, buddy. That was pretty intense. My life was not great, but it's all right. Well, there you go. Seven minutes of uh, of technological stuff. apologetics. That's how you defend the faith against not working technology. Hey, hold on a second. I'm answering somebody said that uh, I'm still teaching the heresy of the Trinity. I said, call in my show and let's talk and stop hiding behind a nickname. You know, it always gets me is people like to take shots and they don't even use the, the real names. <clears throat> anyway, right. Okay. All right, folks, we are in. We've already prayed and uh, there you go. So, Okay, now what? Now we just talk about like apologetic stuff. Apologetic stuff. What would that be? Apologetic stuff. Well, apologetics includes so much, so it depends where you want to tackle it, man. Okay, so what do you? Oh, I'm gonna just have fun here. What do you feel is the best approach in apologetics? The biblical approach. Oh, there you go. That's a good. <laughs> that's a smart aleck answer. That's what I would yeah. say. No, well, well, actually, actually, it's not. I, I joke. I, I, I give smart aleck answers, but it, there's some truth to that. I, and if I want to use a technical term, but it's true. I'm a presuppositional apologist, so I think that the presuppositional method is um, the biblical one, because so when you, you don't follow the biblical method, you say stuff like God probably exists, the preponderance of evidence, and we're not arguing for the Christian God. That's the kind of stuff you say. When you use an unbiblical apologetic, why is it unbiblical? I'm going to quiz uh, you, well, man. Let's see how you do. Why is it unbiblical? Well, because the Bible doesn't give us the example of defending the faith in such a way where we actually set our commitment to God aside. First Peter chapter three verse fifteen says to set apart Christ as Lord in our heart, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. Most books on apologetics focus on the always ready and ignore that first part that we're to set apart Christ as Lord in our heart. So it's actually the lordship of Jesus Christ that governs, it's the prerequisite of doing apologetics. It governs everything that we do. And so if Jesus is Lord over all, then we cannot set aside our intellectual foundations for the sake of neutrality or things like that. Well, uh, okay. Didn't Jesus tell Thomas to look at the evidence of the holes in his wrists and then believe? Yeah, well, a lot of people bring that up, and what's hidden in there is is an erroneous presupposition that presuppositionalists don't use evidence. And we do use evidence, but it's within the context of the Christian worldview. Thomas, for example, came from a, I would argue, a Christian worldview, even though he was inconsistent in his doubt. So he still had that intellectual background that allowed him to receive and understand uh, the meaning and the the powerful nature of the evidence that Jesus gave him in showing him the holes in his in his hands and so forth. Well, what about Paul in Acts seventeen when he used rationality and pagan philosophy in order to get the unbelievers to believe in Jesus? Well, when you say rationality, we talk about reason and philosophy. There are over twenty or thirty different kinds of reasoning. You have Kantian reason, Cartesian reason. It's the kind of reason that's being used. And Paul, that, that same person, Paul, that's speaking in, in Acts, also speaks about the treasures of wisdom and knowledge being found in Christ, Colossians 2, 3. Um, and, um, of course, he had the Old Testament background and would have affirmed what the book of Proverbs taught, uh, that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So when he tried to reason with people, it was not a sort of autonomous reasoning. He could appeal to the image of God within man to make a connection. There is common ground 
between the believer and unbeliever, even within a presuppositional framework. The common ground is not neutral ground. The common ground is actually the fact that both the believer and unbeliever are created in the image of God. And so we appeal to that. And sometimes we could use examples from our experience, examples from the world to kind of draw those connections. Well, what do you do if an atheist such as doesn't believe in God or the Bible? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Doesn't say what? Well, uh, he's denying the existence of God, and the Bible says all men know that God exists. So I'll just reject his statement and explore that with him a little bit. Okay, so if an atheist says he doesn't believe in God, and you say, yes, you do, yeah. then what? Then, then we need to have a conversation, um, because um, my commitment is to my ultimate authority, the word of God, and God being omniscient knows the heart of all men. And so if his word tells me the nature of the heart of man and the fact that all men know God— I'm not going to engage in an argument without assuming what God has revealed about the nature of man. And so I, what the goal of apologetics really is to point out uh, in reality, the unbeliever is suppressing the truth about God in his unrighteousness. And so we'd explore that a little bit. I wouldn't just merely make the statement um, because um, we'd have to kind of explore in what way do all men know God? Okay, so let me ask you a question. In, okay. what, in what way do all men know God? Um, well, in, well, well, let's talk a little bit about what in what way they don't know God, because there is a way in which all men know God, and there's a way in which men don't know God. And if you read uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, he kind of explains a little bit about the different ways in which we know and don't know. Uh, we don't know God in relationship, and that's evidenced by the fact that on judgment, Jesus will say um, to those on his left, get away from me, I never knew you. There is no relational knowledge of of um of the person towards god they never really knew him and jesus was never in relationship with them but the way in which all men know god is evidenced in that while they reject him with their mouth they actually live in ways that only make sense if he does exist and so my job as an apologist is to point out those inconsistencies within his worldview that as you are common or you're known to saying people act upon what they believe yeah. but it's very interesting that people say they believe one thing but they live their life um, in a way that actually is in conflict with what they say they believe. For example, an atheist will say there's no God, but then he'll complain um, when he sees immoral things in the world. And so you have a conflict there. Uh, the metaphysical naturalist will say all that exists is matter and motion, um, yet he will appeal to the immaterial transcendental laws of logic. So those are, those are inconsistencies within his own worldview, which is evidence that we could explore that what he says with his mouth, he actually doesn't really believe in his heart. And that's precisely what the Bible says. Could you repeat that? Because, you know, that was <laughs> so, folks, if you're coming in late, uh, Ela and I, we have all kinds of conversations like this all the time. I'm just asking questions that have him go because um, Eli uh, and I will we'll talk about all kinds of things. We did today presuppositionalism. Uh, we talk about Molinism. We'll talk about various philosophical issues and things like that. And uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I use rational uh, thought. I, I'll use evidences, but I always presuppose that the Christian God exists. One time a, an atheist actually said to me, look, man, I want you to do a thought experiment. I said, okay. And he said, what I'd like you to do is, um, you know, just imagine that God doesn't, the Christian God doesn't even exist. And I said, oh, done. I'm not going to do that. We're not going anywhere, not going there. And he said, well, why not? Just a thought exercise. I said, I cannot violate the word of God in order to suit your ungodly needs. It's not going to happen. And so I wasn't going to let him do that. And he, you know, he didn't like that. But the whole thing is that I'm not going to, and no Christian should, entertain the idea that God does not exist. Because, well, to, to do that is intellectual suicide, spiritual suicide as well. But that's another topic, too. But nevertheless, so uh, 
Yeah, I think, that's very, I think that's a very important point to, to bring out. When someone asks the Christian to jump into a hypothetical worldview, they have to understand that the claim of the, the presuppositionalist, the Christian, is not that the Christian worldview is the most rational worldview. Uh, we're saying it's the only rational worldview. Right. And so if you're hypothetically asking us to jump into this other worldview, for us, by definition, you're asking us to jump into irrationality and then rationalize with you, which is, again, a kind of a contradictory enterprise to begin with. Yeah, it's like saying, "Can you? I want you to imagine a round square for a minute, and let's talk about logic. I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. The, the very right. beginning of your whole assumption does not work. Right. And to abandon God as a necessary precondition for intelligibility is to adopt irrationality and then try and argue rationally. It's a self-refuting thing. You just want to do that kind of a thing. Very good. Right, right. And, so, and I think it's important to also to recognize, because a lot of presuppositionalists will say these kinds of things. The Christian worldview is the only rational worldview. And then they'll stop there. <laughs> so, because when people hear this uh, for the first time, they're kind of, you know, well, what do you mean? And so it is necessary for us to actually explain what we mean by that and kind of show the no, truth no, of what we're saying. What, go ahead and explain, expand on it. Why is Christianity the only rational, the only rational worldview to hold? Well, first, uh, one of its truth claims is that it's the only one. And when you actually um, uh, take a look at the Christian worldview as a system, it is the only worldview perspective that provides the necessary preconditions for, for knowledge. And that's why presuppositionalists tend to focus on discussing the issue of truth. A lot of people don't like to talk about truth. They like to just assume that everyone knows what's true and then argue on that basis. But one of the key commitments of the presuppositionalists is that we are to begin our apologetical um, enterprise by setting apart Christ as Lord. Now, he's the Lord over everything. He's Lord over knowledge. He's Lord over truth. And so um, when we affirm that, we cannot grant um, truth to the unbeliever on their own basis. And so what we would do is show that only on the Christian system can you have something like truth. And that's why you have people say, you know, if, if, if you believe in truth, you know, how do you get truth in your own worldview. That's not a word game. A lot of people think Christians are playing word games there to try to avoid answering questions. Actually, it's a very <laughs> fundamental epistemological question. What is truth? If you can't define truth within your own worldview, then how can you engage in a discussion over truth when it hasn't been coherently defined? And the Christian's position of truth is fundamentally in opposition to the unbeliever's um, definition of truth. When someone says, what's truth? I say, it's anything that conforms to the mind of God. They'll be like, wait a minute. I thought truth is a justified true belief. I was like, well, my argument is that you can't have a justification for any belief unless you start with my God. And so we're right there at the beginning at an antithesis. We are right there at disagreements over what the nature of truth is. And so what the unbeliever usually wants to do is just pass that aside. Okay, well, just give me evidence. Well, wait a minute. Evidence presupposes truth. And how do you define truth within your own worldview? And how does your own worldview provide the necessary preconditions to, to kind of prop that up? Because that's logically prior. That question is logically prior to any discussion of evidence. Um, and so I would hammer those things in and show that on your worldview, you can't have it. On my worldview, you can. And it's the only worldview that can do that. Okay. Well, if, if, I'll tell you what. Let's open it up for questions. If anybody wants to ask anything, but i got more questions I could ask you. Sure. Anybody want to say anything? Anybody got any ideas, any comments? You can do it in the... Uh, uh, participation room or in the video room. Give them a sec here to do that. Yeah, sure. And I apologize if I'm yelling. Like I'm a teacher, so when I teach, my my voice amplifies, and I'm not really used to talking through my computer. So, 
Well, all you got to do is relax and everything will be fine. And and because uh, you have a tendency, like I used to when I was younger, just talk very quickly because your right, mind's right. full of of uh, information. That it's like, okay, I got to say this, I got to say that, and and uh, yeah. But a lot of people don't understand, like for example, what the nature of truth is, and that's something worth discussing for a while, so people can can understand. So I don't see anybody else with any comments or anything, and I'm looking at the video feed. Let me see here. Uh, introduction to apologetics, being dark understanding. Read that's right. Introduction. There you go. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about what truth is, <laughs> because um, uh, you know people will say different things about truth. Truth is what you want to believe, or truth is what is true for you, mm-hmm. and not yeah, true for somebody else. Oh, yeah. Someone had a question. Yeah, well, Matt, uh, you you brought up the whole round square thing again, and I'm assuming that e- Eli would agree with you since he's a Calvinist. But Eli, I noticed that last week you uh, you did a pretty good job at going ahead and even though you don't hold to Molinism, you did a pretty good job at debating Matt Slick playing devil's advocate. Uh, would you be able to, if you could, uh, even though you may not hold that view? Would you be able to argue that view that God could make a round square if he so choose to do so? Uh, no, because that presupposes uh, an, an, an unbiblical and illogical view of God's omnipotence. A lot of people think that when we say that God is omnipotent, that that entails that he should be able to create a round circle. But the reason why he can't create a round circle is because a round circle is not a thing that can be created. It's, it's not a thing. So it's like asking, can God create this thing that's not a thing? Uh, it's just a jumbled you know, mixture of words. And so um, the biblical view of omniscience does not necessitate that God is able to do the logically impossible. Here's a question. Is God so powerful that he could strip himself of his own divinity? Well, no, <laughs> he doesn't. God doesn't violate the laws of logic, um, not because there's, there, there's not an external law that he follows called logic, Logic is a reflection of his mind and his thinking, and he can't violate his nature. But that's not an impingement upon his omnipotence, because omnipotence doesn't entail that you can do the logically impossible. Um, and here's, here's a problem, too. People who think, well, omnipotence should entail that God does the logically impossible. Someone asked me one time, and it's a famous philosophical question, um, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift? Um, and so my answer is, uh, well, you know, it's a contradictory question. But then they demand, well, God can do anything. I'm like, fine. God can create a rock so big that he can't lift. I'm like, uh-huh, he's not all powerful. Oh, yes, he is, but he can't lift the rock. I'm like, he can lift it and then not lift it. Well, that doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. And then I say, well, so was your question. So if you ask a contradictory question, you're going to get a contradictory answer. And that's why we affirm that God doesn't violate his nature because if he does violate his nature, does violate logic, then you have meaning and truth is all garbled up and you, you can't really make sense out of anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, but uh, see, the way I I perceive it is that the logic that we understand with regards to the mechanics of our universe, our natural universe, mm-hmm. it's a presupposition to apply that logic to God's nature, because we don't know what logic is involved with regards to God's nature. We do know that with regards, he cannot violate his own nature, but I think it's it's wrong to go ahead and logic that's involved with the natural universe is somehow tied to God's own nature. I think to do that is a is a form of quasi pantheism. I'm not well, calling you a pantheist or anything. Sure, I'm sure, sure. That, I'm yeah. just saying that it 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 seems strange to do that 
when, uh, as y'all said before in, in last week's conversation, mm-hmm. we're not to know God from a bottom-up approach, but from a top-down approach. And I think we can only know God from what is revealed. And I think for us to go ahead and make a presupposition that God cannot make a round square because it would some, like you said, it, it's something that is uh, an absurd idea. It's, it's non-existent. Well, we don't know that. You would presuppose that it's something that's incapable of coming into existence because it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But well, when you even say- in quantum physics, it it's possible even in quantum physics for there to be a round square. No, that would mean that's that false. In- I would disagree that that that's that's false. Just real quick, just to back up real quick, you said that um, it's just a presupposition. It actually isn't. When we say that. God reveals himself in the word. Would you agree that the Bible is the inspired word of God? I do. Right. And so if you take a look, the God inspired a book with language, right? Yes. Yes. And that language presupposes certain structures of logic, right? I don't believe that the language itself, simply focusing on the language. And the thought behind the it, language, maybe? The thought behind the well, word? Well, I believe... Well, for example, like when he spoke about the laws of God, there was the letter of the law and there was the spirit of the law. And mm-hmm. I think if you equate the linguistics of the language with the spirit of the message, I think that is the same as going ahead and saying that the logical laws that govern the mechanics of the universe is somehow equatable to the spirit of God, the, the, the very nature of God. And I think, again, I think that's sort of like a quasi-pantheism approach to understanding God. I don't see um, how it's example, pantheism, but I'm having difficulty following your connection there with pantheism. Well, for example, um, for example, um, you, it, it's an absurdity. It's an absurd idea for there to be a round square. I would agree. But it's also absurd to say that God could go ahead and create this natural universe from nothing. Because I've, I've heard Matt Slick and I've heard other... It's not absurd. Uh, yeah, I don't think it, I don't think that's absurd at all, and I don't think they're the same. I don't think the creation, God creating ex nihilo, is violating a law of logic. I don't I don't think that it, that that's illogical at all. When you say absurd, I think I, I I'm understanding you to, to to mean that something that's absurd is something that's logically incoherent. Now, a round circle is most definitely logically incoherent, but creation ex nihilo is not. Even if someone didn't believe it to be true, there's nothing. There's nothing in the idea of God creating out of nothing that violates the second law of logic. Well, the thing is, I've, I've heard... I can't really hear you. Your voice kind of muted down there. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Am I coming in? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, the thing is, I've heard Matt Slick, and I've heard other apologists, even Catholic apologists, mm-hmm. in debates with atheists, actually ask him, well, can some... It's actually make the claim that it's absurd when they make the claim the atheist may claim that something can come from nothing. So it's the Christian side that is saying that it, something did it not is an come absurdity. from nothing. But God created it from nothing. But God but is not God. nothing. God but created, so it's not but, not nothing from nothing. Okay, not something so, from nothing. So, right. So therefore, that same as since we're talking about logic, if we apply that same logic. God could go ahead and create a round square. That doesn't follow at all. I don't see how you, when you say that, I don't see how that followed from anything you you said. Here's a question. Can God, 
can God create a being that is completely equal to himself in every way? No, because that would violate the very (laughs) nature of God because there's only one God. But can God violate his nature and not violate his nature at the same time and in the same way? No, God can never violate his own nature. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Your voice muted again. God, God can never violate his own nature, but making a round square would not violate his own nature is what I'm trying to make the point. Um, I think it is outside of God's nature to perform irrational things. Because God is an eminently rational being, anything he does is rational. He's always rational. So to create a square circle, square circle is by definition irrational, and so God can't do it because God always acts consistently with who he is. Um, that's like saying, you know, can God lie? Well, no, God can't lie. Why? Well, because it goes against his nature. Well, if God can, com- if God can perform logically incompatible things, then we could affirm that it's possible given his omnipotence that God can both lie and not lie at the same time and in the same way, which is, which is absurd. We, we couldn't even understand what that means, which is precisely what a logical absurdity is. There's no meaning or content to it. Well, there's numerous, uh, PhD scientists, physicists, quantum physicists, if you mm-hmm. look at some of the videos, they have many videos on YouTube where they actually speak about uh, the physics, the, the mechanics of the quantum universe compared mm-hmm. to the macro universe. And they themselves said that you could have two things existing uh, uh, that are exactly the same one thing in the quantum universe. And they said the logic, the logic of the macro universe does not conform to the quantum universe, but we know that God created the quantum universe and the macro universe. I I would be careful because the PhD scientists don't even fully understand quantum events. For example, some PhD physicists will say that in the, in the, the field of quantum mechanics, things come into existence out of nothing. And that's, that's not true. Even when they say that, because the, um, Cosmic vacuum is not nothing. It's a sea of fluctuating energy. And actually, within that sea of fluctuating energy, you have subatomic particles that come into, it appears to come into existence, but it's not coming into existence from nothing. But you have PhD scientists using that language as though that's actually the case. And so I'd be very cautious of a a quantum physicist talking about uh, two things that are two things, but also one thing. Um, Even if there were multiple logics, you still need the basic Aristotelian laws of logic to even talk about them. Um, which I would argue is necessary because you need logic to talk about anything and to understand anything. If nature at base is logically incoherent, then we have a problem. How do we get logical incoherence and then move from that state into a state of coherence? If it's the fundamental aspect of reality, God being a rational being created the world to function in certain ways. And because as human beings, at least, if we're not talking so much about, you know, nature external to ourselves, we're creating the image of God. I would argue that the image of God entails rationality and the utilization of logic. And so when we think logically, we're actually not using a different logic than God, but we're actually thinking God's thoughts after him. And that's how we honor and glorify God in the way that we think. I think there's a connection there when the Bible says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. Uh, When we think rationally and logically, we honor God because that's how God thinks. But when we're irrational, we're not thinking like God. And so we're not honoring God in the way that we think. Well, I think it, when it comes to truths and morals, I would agree with you. But when it comes to the logical laws of the mechanics of the universe, the phys- physics of the universe, but, 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 I, think I apologize. I, I apologize. You said truth and morality, but then you you said you agree with truth and morality that that's the case. But then you talked about 
quantum mechanics, which presupposes truth. So quantum mechanics is an element of truth. And if truth presupposes the logic that you just agreed uh, holds, then any discussion of quantum mechanics would, would have to include that and presuppose that. But we have to distinguish the truth, the truth that applies to the mechanics of the universe versus the truth that applies to God. And that's that's where I believe that there's a mixing of those two truths that shouldn't take place. For example, God walked on water. I'm, I'm is sorry. It I rational, is it rational for a man to walk on water? Yes. It doesn't violate any logical law whatsoever. It violates natural laws as we perceive them. But there's not, uh, for example, a man walks on water. That proposition does not violate the second law of logic, namely that a statement cannot be both true and false at the same time in the same way. There is a way in which natural man cannot walk on water, but there is a way in which he can, i.e. divine intervention. So there's no, there's no logical contradiction in, in stating that someone walks on water. Okay, so therefore, I would agree exactly with what you said, because okay. you, you brought into natural terms, you made a, distinguish, you, a distinction with regards to the logic that applies to the natural universe versus what God supernaturally is capable of doing. But they're the same and logic. So, I, don't, I don't differentiate between the logics. I, I, like God interacts with us in logical ways. When he manifests himself, he's he can't he, he can't reveal himself if he's using a different logic than than we are because we have a logic that we function under and outside that logic we couldn't understand anything. So God interacts with us in his divinity and his essence in a logical fashion. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to understand what he's doing. But still, you, applying the logic Your voice is muted again. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't hear him at all. Um, there you go. You're back. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I missed well, what you yeah. said. So if you could repeat what you said, so, I'm sorry. So applying the mechanics that governs the laws of the natural universe, a man cannot walk upon water. You would agree without well, the divine intervention of God. Well, I, I have to actually be careful with the use of intervention because I, I, I don't think laws are autonomous things that govern until God interacts with them. Um, for example, someone asked me, what, uh, what is my definition of miracle? My uh, definition of miracle, which is related to how I understand laws, is a lesser way in which God governs the universe. So he functions in a particular way that's very rare. And so when it happens, we notice it as a miracle. But God is always in control of everything. And so the laws of nature, as we call them, are not these autonomous things that just govern the world. It is the common way in which God governs the world. And so I, I, don't, agree. I, agree. I don't think the quantum mechanics have these natures of themselves and that they can produce these irrationalities like logical incoherencies because God is governing uh, both the laws of nature and everything else. Um, they're always based upon rationality since God is rational as, as, a, as a being. Right, I, and I absolutely agree with that. But the okay. norm... Of the natural universe, the logic that governs the mechanics of the is that a man cannot walk upon water. And as you said before, no, 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 no. I would disagree with that because when you talk about quantum mechanics, you're talking about science and you're talking about induction. We observe that men normally don't walk on water, but you can't use induction to say, look, this tells us that man can't. Can't doesn't belong in science because science does not give you absolute knowledge about something since it's based on inductive inference which actually can only get you to probability. 
Sean Carroll, who's an atheistic um, cosmologist, says that science doesn't give you truth. He gives you theories that work. So scientists who actually understand science don't make those wide-ranging claims that science tells us that, that this can't happen. Science can't tell us that man can't walk on water. Science tells us that normally men don't walk on water. And I think that's a, that's a huge difference. So if we don't normally see a round square and have never seen a round square, does it mean that a round square doesn't exist somewhere <laughs> in the universe? No, in that case, we know that a round square doesn't exist because a round square isn't a thing. It's irrational. It's just you just have a sentence with words that have the word round and square in it. There's there's no such thing as a thing of a round square. Like no one can look look. There's a round square. It it doesn't it doesn't exist. Right. Um, that's like saying. What about saying something similar like? There's something that doesn't exist, but it also exists. And, that, and from what he's saying, then that's possible. What it doesn't like? exist, it also exists. And what does that look like? Yeah. Have you ever seen something that exists and doesn't exist at the same time and in the same way? That would it's be an incoherent question. It's logically impossible. You can't have a round square because it can't exist. There's right. no, it does and also doesn't. It's just, yeah. yeah. He and I have gone over this and, many times. So have Adam. And and then scientists, I don't I don't believe in this, but they also put forth this whole uh, multi-universe thing where they say that there could be laws of physics that are completely different from our own universe. So just, you know, uh, if there are, you know, other universes out there, obviously they would all have been created by God as well and really right. part of the universe itself. Don't make a mistake uh, they, of thinking... Don't make a mistake of thinking that logic and the universe are the same thing or physics and logic are the same thing. Right. I would say logic governs. If there is a multiverse, logic would govern, would, would be binding on all of them since logic is not something that's a property of our universe. Rather, it's transcendent. It's not limited by our own physical cosmos. So it two rests plus in the mind and heart of God. And if God's everywhere, then all universes are subject to that same logic. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we have to be careful, too, when scientists say there may be other universes that are governed. Well, there may be unicorns on the dark side of the moon. There's no basis for them to, to say that at all. No, I understand. But the thing is, if there are other universes out there with uh, mm -hmm. physics or laws that are completely different from our own universe, right. then we can't necessarily say that a round square couldn't exist in that universe. Yes, we can, because if the laws of physics are different, the laws of physics are different than the laws of logic. So just because the laws of physics might be different in another universe, that does not logically entail that, therefore, that includes the laws of logic being different. Because I think what's implicit in your statements is the idea that logic is, the, is a property of a universe and that there is another universe out there that has a property called logic and it's different than the property of logic that we have over here. And, I, and again, that is to ignore the reality that logic is transcendental in nature. It's not limited to universes. Two plus two uh, must be four, either here or on the other side of our universe, or if there are other universes that, that exist, two plus two would have to be, you know, four over there. Now, now, in another universe, if there's another universe with the different laws of physics, maybe perhaps that in that universe, someone could walk on water. That's possible if the laws of nature are different. That might allow for it if we can kind of, you know, be, speculate a little bit. But that's not the same as saying that different universes can have different logic. Yeah, explain to him why logic is what it is. The transcendental nature, which which is a property of God's mind and, and ubiquity. 
because he doesn't understand that. It's good for others to know that as well. You know? Yeah, well, I always I always think of logic as the, the laws of thinking, but in a theological sense, it, it really is a reflection of God's thinking. And so logic is, is um, you would often say it's an abstraction, but it, it's also a concept. And, it, and concepts necessarily reside in minds. But the issue with logic is that it's a universal concept. And so if concepts necessarily reside in minds, and this is a universal concept, then it seems to follow that logic would, ha would have to reside in the universal mind of God, or is the mind of God, really, it's a reflection of his thinking. So we can't separate logic from God's mind. We are not, um, I hate to use the term, but we're not Platonist, if you take a look at the philosophy of Plato, where they, he believes that abstract objects kind of exist out there. Uh, you know, there's this thing out there called logic. Logic independent of mind is an incoherent concept, I think. Which is why a round square can't occur, because by definition, they exclude each other as being what they are. So you can't right. have things that are said to be mutually exclusionary as being a true thing. It, it doesn't right. work. A lot of atheists, for example, will often say something to the effect that you can't dis you can't um, disprove a universe or prove a universal negative. And that's actually false. You can you can um, prove a universal negative by showing that something's logically incoherent. So yeah. so if I say that a square circle can't exist, well like, well you haven't been anywhere in the universe. It doesn't matter because the very concept is logically incoherent and can't exist anywhere. So that, that's that's an important point. I mean, because logic applies everywhere. If something is incoherent, it that something of which we speak, besides it being not a thing, can't exist anywhere. Right? And that's very important. If you affirm that contradiction can be true, then you run into some problems because then it can be true in some universe that God exists and doesn't exist at the same time and in the same way, which is which is absurd. Is it possible for a person to exist at two places at the exact same time? Two places at, at the exact same time? A no. physical person or divine person? A physical, a physical person. Yeah, yeah. No, because I, I think um, if, they're if they're two individual persons, uh, again, I'm arguing from the Christian perspective here that as an image bearer of God, I am not equivalent with my body. I am a body with a soul. And so when I die, there is a separation of my body and my soul. And my soul goes to be with the Lord. So I am my soul, <laughs> okay? And so if there are two bodies separated, well, where's my soul? You say both of them. Well, I have two different souls. Then they're not exactly the same person. You're talking about two different people. That's why I, I kind of talked about this with my students. There yeah. are documented cases where Catholic saints were, it's, what, it's what's called bilocation. They were at two different places at the exact same time. And this is throughout Catholic Church's history. Well, for example, well, again, I'm not Catholic, so I, I, w I would have to look at those particular instances. And again, I already have a belief as to what the Bible says about certain things that cause me to disagree with certain, you know, arguments and things that Catholics uh, bring up. But I do think that there's an issue of identity if, if a person is two places at, at, at once. Um, again, that that again, if someone can be at two places at once, then it's possible for them to be at three places at once, or four places at once, or five places at once. What we're doing is actually giving one of the incommunicable attributes of God, His omnipresence, to created things, um, and that is an incommunicable attribute. And so, that's not communicated to creatures. Only God is everywhere. And so, I, I would say that that's problematic, saying that someone is two places at once, and both of those people are the same person. Well, it, it is documented, but 
Uh, listen, I, I wanted to tell Matt. It, it, uh, it doesn't prove since, anything. If it's documented, all you have is you could have a demonic manifestation uh, trying to fake people out to think that Catholicism is true by having someone in two places. You right. don't know what it, the, tr the truth is. Right. But even if he disagrees with that, even if you say, well, I don't believe it's demonic. The, the reality is, if it is demonic, then that would explain that what there's something that appears to be a manifestation of these things. You can't know that merely by documentation. Because documentation, you need a reader to read the document, and the reader comes to the paper <laughs> with his own presuppositions, his own worldviews, and his own commitment or lack thereof to scripture. Your voice kind of went down again. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Can't hear you. Yeah, can't hear you, bud. What about now? There you go. No, can't. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Um, what about now? There you, you know, go. Able to hear me? No. Yep. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. So, yeah, Matt. Since uh, last week you voiced interest in uh, wanting to debate one of the Catholic apologists at Catholic Answers. Yeah. So I uh, I went ahead and uh. uh Trent Horn of uh, Catholic Answers, uh, since he's presently seeking persons to invite on podcast show, which happens to be called the Council of Trent, I went ahead and dropped your name, you know, on his Twitter page, and uh, he said that he tried contacting you, but uh, he hasn't heard anything back from you. So I just, I don't know if he sent you an email or called you or what. My wife read it to me uh, today. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm just going to decide in what venue, either by Skype or actually because they invited me down to go to San Diego. And um, so we'll just see. It just depends on a few things. But, yeah, that's fine. I'd be glad to expose the, the lies of Catholicism. Well, I see there's other people that just joined into the uh, the uh, room, so I'll go ahead and mute myself. It was good talking to you. Yeah, I think Nathan had a question for you guys. Sure. Go ahead, Nathan. Can you hear him, Matt? I can't hear him. Nope. Nathan? He's just muted himself. Hello. There he is. Okay, go ahead, Nathan. So I think we talked a little while back. Uh, so I had a question on Job chapter uh, 26, verse 7, if you uh, know about that one. All right, Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing, okay? Right. So I've been researching it quite a good bit, and I, I had a theory that it, well, I had a belief that it was referring to a literal uh, God suspending the earth upon nothing, but I'm really not too sure what to make of it now because I did more research on the Hebrew side of it, and it seems to be, uh, I guess, different now. Uh, I'm not sure to tell you. Uh, it's I've known about this verse for a long time, and uh, it seems to support the idea that that the Earth it dwells in space. Uh, it's not hung on anything, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, there's he stretches the North over empty space. It's perfectly consistent with what we understand. Right. So not a big deal. I don't. So why do you know so, something else about it? Yes. Uh, so the word. Uh, Tohu in Hebrew, T-O-H-U, uh, means void. 
And uh, it, there's quite a few different references to void. There's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and chapter 10 for, uh, Sam, for Samuel uh, 12, 21, and, and a few other uh, verses. But anyways, uh, the way that is translated in uh, Job chapter 26, verse 7, uh, is a parallel of hanging the, or hanging the earth over the void. Uh, and basically it's saying uh, on nothing. So the Hebrew translates on uh, nothing, Bailey uh, Ma. Uh, and... In in the Hebrew scriptures, the parallel here uh, is not referring to uh, a f- earth flowing in outer space, but tohu, which means deep. Uh, in Hebrew, tohu means deep and not like outer space as we would conceive it. Well, words be with you mean in context, and words have a semantic domain, and you can find out that uh, tohu has is translated as confusion, as without form. Uh, and other things, it's translated in different ways. Right. So you have to be careful what you know, what is what you think it means. But uh, I'm I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at, though. So uh, I, I was doing some research again, and basically, um, it, it it's kind of confusing on this because uh, it, when it says free float, you would think that like it, it's literally referring to a free float, but it it seems like. Um, what what's referring to here is uh, different, I suppose. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm following you, but um, let me uh, you know look at it again. But uh, in a different translations, just say the same thing. You know, it's uh, let's see. How does the Septuagint do it? Uh, yeah, it stresses out the north upon nothing. Uh, Epi udes, uh, he hangs the earth upon nothing, udes. So the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Jews understood it to, just to be that he stretches out the, the north north wind, boreas, aurora borealis, which is interesting, the boreas uh, uh, upon nothing, uh, Epi udes, and he hangs the Earth upon nothing, Epi Udes again. So it's just saying that it just they're just there. They're not suspended on anything. I think the idea of what's going on in Job twenty six seven is that uh, it's the Earth is not a, a round disc uh, on back of turtles and things like that. It's out there in nothing. That's this is what it seems to be saying. That's what the Septuagint is clearly teaching as well. Right. Do you think that there's a a uh, possible different translation that uh, that you could get out of it because it it seems like uh, it, it, I mean just by the look of it uh, you know like there's so many other verses that seem to indicate like I'm not saying that this is the case but it seems to in- indicate like a flat earth or so like if you ever read uh, oh, what what no. was it the circle of no, the it, earth it, or so yeah that's not uh, this is not supporting um, a flat earth anything I hope you're not leaning towards that. Uh, no, not at all. I, I was just wondering, though, because if the Bible talks about how, uh, you know, the earth cannot be moved and all that, it seems very confusing, like some of the uh, verses, because it's hard to decipher at times, uh, metaphorical between historical. Right, right exactly. He moved. Yeah, the earth can't be moved. Well, what does it mean? We have an earthquake. See, it moved. It's, it's not talking about that kind of sense. Uh, it, it's solid. It, it's structured. It, it's it's immovable. But of course, God knows it's orbiting around the sun. I mean, he's not talking about that kind of a sense. 
uh, the solidification, the solidity of the of the world, of the earth. It's you can trust it. It's going to be there. You know, this kind of thing is what's being being spoken out there. I have to be careful too. The biblical text also, you know, um, the the idea that the Bible is inspired does not negate that God allowed the writers to utilize the language uh, structures of their day. There is definitely that perspectival issue that people are writing from their perspective as they observe it. Right. Um, and, Matt has made mention of this, you know, the sun rising, the sunset, especially when you study a word, too, and you explore its semantic domain. you got to be careful that the semantic domain does not mean that the word can mean all of those things all the time. The way you pick within the semantic domain needs to fit the context. And, of course, when we're reading the scripture, we believe that it's inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and that God doesn't contradict himself. So when right. there's an option amongst the words um, that if we adopt, if we uh, accept that the word means one thing within its semantic domain and adopting that particular option causes us to contradict other areas of scripture, that's a warning sign as well. We want to be able to read things in context and in ways that don't contradict clearly what the Bible teaches elsewhere and right. taking into perspective that perspectival issue where people are writing from their perspective. Um, I think that's right. very important when you're interpreting scripture. You're right. And, you know, it, it confuses me, though, because, you know, in, in uh, Joshua, it says that the sun stopped moving. And, you know, oh, like, yeah. why would uh, God allow, allow Joshua to write something like that in a metaphorical sense? And uh, then it, it always gives me the question, is Job chapter 26, verse 7 uh, to be taken uh, literal? Is, is it really meaning what it says it means? Or is it trying to say a metaphorical thing that we don't understand? Yeah, it may be that. You have to be careful, though, too, that the Bible is not a science text. And so whereas it tells us true things about uh, nature, it's not doing that exhaustively. And so we have to be careful. It takes training, too, to differentiate between a poetic uh, kind of something being described poetically, perspectively and things like that. And that takes work. Um, but, yeah, it can be challenging. Um, but we don't want to make the Bible say what it doesn't say, and we don't want to impose our understandings on the ancient context, kind of looking at things anachronistically. Right. Personally, I just interject, I do believe the sun stopped. Mm -hmm. But I, I believe what happened is that the Earth's angle of rotation or axis was changed. I think God did this kind of thing. There's no problem with that at all. Yeah. And, and I like that you said that, Matt, because most apologists don't say that. Now, I don't know how to understand that passage right off the top of my head, but there is no, there's nothing illogical with the idea that God could have done that. Sure, he could have. <laughs> it's well, not illogical. It's just, it's just against what we know of nature, but that doesn't make it, that doesn't, that does not necessitate it. God could do that if, if he so desired. Why not? Why not? A guy could just take the earth and have it tilt so that the earth, the sun looked like it stood still, or he could have stopped the earth so it did stand still in the earth. You know, no big deal. What's wrong with saying that? the question, Matt. If the earth is rotating, could God stop the rotation of the earth while also allowing us not to feel the fact that it stopped? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So there are a lot of things that God can do. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that that's exactly what he, what he did in that case, but I mean, we can't, we can't cancel those out because your presuppositions and worldview will dictate what is possible and impossible, what seems irrational. Right. Things right. Like that. right. I, a while back, I was speaking to an expert on this and uh, just, just some person. And anyways, what they were saying, since they studied Hebrew, is that basically from Joshua's perspective, the sun did stop. But, uh, you know, God wanted people at that time to understand it because if uh, 
you know, people from back then who really didn't understand all the things in the solar system read it, who may not have been uh, Joshua or so, uh, you know, many people would probably question it or so. And that's what uh, the, that guy was saying. Mm-hmm. I think it stopped. Something actually happened and they recorded it. I don't think we have to subject the Bible to what the modern physics says can and can't happen. Well, if we were to do that, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He didn't walk on water. Oh. Right. Physics can't tell us what can and cannot happen. It only can tell us what happens. Right. I've also had this other question. This has been bugging me for so long now, but are there any, and this kind of goes back more, well, actually forward more into the New Testament, but are there people who were secular uh, writers other than Tacitus who wrote about Jesus's miracles uh, around the time of you know his crucifixion and all because it, you know like so the things that he did were just amazing so I, I mean i've always wondered uh why aren't there that many people writing on him other than you know josephus and tacitus and josephus wasn't until much later well you got to understand in the culture the roman empire there was a doctrine called caesaropapism caesaropapism is emperor worship and so if would be politically incorrect and suicidal for a Roman citizen to start saying that Jesus Christ was doing all these things and writing about it because if he wrote about it, which most people didn't write, they had to hire someone to do the writing, hire a scribe or an amanuensis to do that. To do that would be to incur an expense and then to publicly say we saw this kind of a thing uh, and they would risk being persecuted by the Roman Empire. The reason the Roman Empire allowed uh, the Jews to do what they were doing was because of their history, the Jews hit their history of fighting against oppressors in order to hold to their God. And plus it was way out in the middle of nowhere. And so the Roman Empire let them do the things that they were going to do. So uh, the Romans, uh, the Jews themselves were in a kind of a, a uh, tenuous relationship with the Roman Empire. And so they didn't want uh, things to go south either. So what happened was the Jews, as well as the Roman citizens, and most of the Jews were Roman citizens because they're born in the Roman Empire, Roman um, uh, occupation, then they were not going to want to make waves. So if you go around saying, hey, Jesus did all this stuff, well, the Jews would be after you and the Romans would probably be after you. So that's one of the reasons you're not going to get a whole bunch of writing about stuff like that. But it did exist. And we do have those things written in the, the Gospels. We have uh, other documents gathered and understood. Uh, I I think an important thing to – what's your name again? I'm sorry. Uh, My name's Nathan. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Uh, 15. All right. Great questions, by the way. That's awesome Uh that you're thinking about those things. Um, I think it's also important to recognize, too, that it is quite amazing that we have anything from the first century. Um, That's – you know, it's amazing that – why don't we have sources outside of the new – it's amazing that we have 27 things written. Is there anything important you're working on right now? I'm sorry? Christopher, okay. what? So I actually need it. I actually need it for about 15, 20 minutes or so. Can you what? Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure what, what he was saying. What, what I was trying to say is that it's amazing that we have anything come out from the first century. So, um, you, you know, a lot of what we have uh, was recorded and passed on, and a lot that has been written has been lost. Um, there, there is a, a library in Alexandria, Egypt, which has been referred to by many of the, uh, um, you know, the early church fathers and things like that, that contained really 
juicy information that we would have loved to have had, but the library was burnt down. If you read right. Eusebius, the history of the church, he actually makes reference to a letter correspondence between Jesus and some ruler that wanted him to come and, and heal one of his family members. Now, how mm -hmm. amazing would that be if we can find a correspondence letter written by Jesus? So we don't right. have those things, but that doesn't mean people didn't write them and Jesus didn't write or, or had someone write. I mean, we know there's a lot that we don't know, but it's amazing that what we have is what we have in the condition that it's in. Right. And, you know, like I, I'm the type of person who, if I don't understand some, I do like three to five hours of research on it. Like I just have to get the answer to it of some variety. And right, some right, of these right. there isn't an answer to uh, right away. Um, or there might not be an answer at all to that, you know, we can actually get. So like when I actually do the research and all, uh, so, you know, like sometimes it's a year later and I'm like, man, I finally got the answer to it. But, um, a, a lot of things with Jesus, like, you know, the early church and all, I've, I've had lots of questions on it. And I've, I've, uh, I think I've studied a little bit on the reference books and all how they've been lost throughout the centuries of some of the writers during the time of Jesus. And I think that's pretty amazing that there were reference books and all that, uh, we're almost like commentaries to the whole Bible, but, um, you know, when it comes to the resurrection and all, it, it always just gives me questions, though, because uh, the, the miracles that are like being observed and all uh, by all the apostles, like, you know, Paul, it, it's quite amazing because like, you know, I was discussing this with a uh, person in school today. But, you know, so, uh, Paul was beheaded and he was a Pharisee. He had everything he wanted. Why would he be beheaded for something, you know, that seemed almost uh, futile if it was wrong. So, I mean, that that's just one thing, of course, but uh, there, there's many other examples that uh, are just amazing that uh, make Christianity stand out. But, uh, I, I, you know, like, I do have questions mainly on Jesus's miracles, uh, especially corresponding to other apostles like Luke or so. Like, how did Luke write so much on Jesus or so when he never even saw Jesus, like, uh, until much later? Well, Luke is a uh, traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yes, I think I am. Right. And Paul um, not only witnessed the risen Lord because he appeared to him on the road to Damascus, but we know that Paul had uh, contact with the other apostles, which which did know they did know Jesus. And so um, he actually spent time with them and could have easily gotten information, uh, a firsthand information by eyewitnesses. And I think that's what makes the New Testament so fascinating is that I mean, it's very clear indication that there are, uh, these are eyewitness accounts or written by people who knew eyewitnesses, um, which is unheard of when you get things that come out of the first century, think copies of these things that we have today. So, mm -hmm. it, yeah, he might have he might not have known Jesus personally, but the connection he has with Paul and Paul's connection with the Apostle Peter. Um, and I think John, was it John also that he met? I'm not sure. I don't remember, Matt. When he I went think to so. Well, he was a researcher, and he apparently was commissioned, and there's a theory about it, commissioned by Theophilus to write. He wrote the book of Luke and uh, Acts, okay. and some people think that it might have been uh, in support of Paul's legal defense when in Acts 17 when he appealed to Caesar, went to Rome, where he wrote like Philippians, for example, so something right. it might have been a legal document. But he was a researcher, would have access to the apostles and others, so uh, he did a very good job of, of researching. Right. And you have someone like Mark, who is uh, very well known to be the amanuensis of, of Peter. Amanuensis is someone who would, write, who would write while someone is dictating to them. And oftentimes they can use their own stylistic you know, ways of writing to kind of convey what the speaker is saying. But there's, a, again, the connection to an eyewitness is so close there if, if it's not already written by an eyewitness. For example, um, you know, I, I believe at least John 
the apostle wrote the gospel of John. So right there you have eyewitness account. Uh, what's interesting about the gospel of John is that it gives you details of a pre um, a pre AD 70 Israel and the temple and things like that, that only a firsthand witness would, would know um, mm -hmm. because in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And so the landscape of Israel at that time was, was very different uh, than during the time of Jesus. Yet here you have the gospel of John giving us very, very great details as to what uh, Jerusalem looked like uh, prior to its destruction and things like that. So there's a lot of indication within the text itself that we're getting really good eyewitness um, information. Right. So did Luke, uh, you said the road to Damascus. So did Luke actually see Christ uh, when he was resurrected or because I know that Mark saw Luke for, I meant uh, Jesus for part of his life. Uh, and, and Matthew was basically his whole life. Almost, well, most of his life, not his whole life, but a lot more of his life. And, uh, and, you know, then, then there's the main followers and all, but uh, it's made me wonder because I think Luke also went to other people who also like not the apostles, but people in the area who reported on uh, Christ's miracles. Right. You have uh, Luke writing an account um, and that he acknowledges that other accounts were written as well. So, yes, he's drawing from information from other people, but his primary information is coming from from eyewitnesses uh, because he's writing what? He's writing a more sure account. <laughs> right. There's many things that have been written. But here I'm giving you the juicy details uh, because I'm getting it from from a good source. Um, and if anyone doubts that source is good, we can just recognize that. Luke uh, knew Paul. I think it's very interesting in the way that the book of Acts is written. You have a narration of the growth of the early church, and then you have the switch in language. They, 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 and then we, 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 where Luke is actually writing in a fashion that he himself is an eyewitness to the very events that he's recording. And that would include the witnessing of certain miracles and things that God did through the early church and through the apostle Paul mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, I, I, I didn't think I worded this is really that clearly, but uh, in fact, I did not word it now that I remember. But uh, did uh, the Bible record like who Luke talked to other than the 12 apostles or was it just the 12 apostles he got the information from? Yeah, I don't think it mentioned them by name. Um, yeah, but I, I wouldn't say that that's not. I mean, again, uh, the ancient writing wasn't like, you know, Chicago style essay papers now we have footnotes where he got <laughs> i say chicago because that was my, when i was in college that was the uh the, the bibliographical format we had to write in where you kind of have the reference they didn't do that back in the day um all we know is the information that he does have is accurate and touches the eyewitnesses but of course there's probably many other eyewitnesses that are, that aren't mentioned by name but that's kind of a moot point i think right yeah that that is interesting for sure and um when, but isn't when, it cool? You said your name was Nathan. Yes, my name is Nathan. Yeah, it, think, think about it, dude. The, the New Testament, we're two thousand years old, and we and we have these documents that can be traced into the very lifetime of the people who claim to have witnessed it. I mean, taking that by itself is not a knockdown argument for the truth of Christianity, but that's really unique. You have nothing like that coming out of the ancient world. Um, which shows how carefully um, and meticulously the, the documents are preserved and copied and things like that. I think that's, from a historical perspective, like super awesome and interesting. And from a Christian perspective, very comforting that um, God has given us these documents and there's really good reason to to, to put our trust in them. Right. It, for sure. You know, 
I do a lot of uh, research on history of the mm-hmm. Bible itself. And, you know, th- there's always this one thing that or th- there's one thing or so, always one simple thing that uh, people try to use to disprove different things. And uh, a while back, uh, I think uh, Matt and I were speaking on Jericho and I was saying about the carbon 14 date, giving a different eight year range from the actual event, even though it, it uh, really adds up perfectly everything. It seems to uh, be Joshua for sure. Uh, what well, what are we to do in, in such cases when, uh, you know, carbon 14 is different or th- there's some little thing that just they, they say contradicts the whole thing and all like what, what are we to do in like yeah, uh, yeah. such, you know, like the minuscule things seem to like be the things that just seem the most confusing at times. Well, Nathan, when you say contradiction, a contradiction implies a violation of the second law of logic. And so it's very important that we define what that is and then go back and explore whether carbon-14, quote, contradicts the data. A contradiction is when a statement cannot be both true and false in the same way and in the same at the same time and in the same sense. So just because carbon dating might give us something that's contrary Carbon dating is not an ultimate absolute standard by which all truth is measured. Um, great, we can trust carbon dating, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking against carbon dating, but it doesn't end all debate when something is carbon dated a certain way, because even carbon dating comes along with its, you know, the data has to be interpreted. You know, you, uh, you, you approach the whole issue with presuppositions and commitments, and that's going to affect the way you look at the data. Are you going to say something, Matt? Yeah, carbon dating assumes that there's a certain rate of carbon decay that occurs. That there's no been, there has not been an external force of car- carbon introduction or uh, such uh, removal through external means. That's one thing. Plus, they have found um, uh, they have found they've dated live things to be fourteen thousand years old. There are some problems with it, but you don't really hear about it. Very yeah, much. Car- carbon dating is applied to organic materials mostly. It's, it has nothing to do with history. That's right. Right. In fact, uh, just recently I, I researched this, but I found out that there's this uh, eruption that happened. I forget the name of the actual eruption that where it was. But anyways, they carbon fourteen dated it, and they gave about the exact same age range difference uh, that you know Jericho gave. Uh, to this mountain or this uh, eruption, they knew the exact date of the eruption. Yet right. it was about hundred years earlier, so it was incorrect. And uh, and this was something that they had trust in. So that you know, they either have to reject the dating methods, or they have to uh, reject that that actually happened at that time. And you know, or, it's, it's a or we take carbon dating with a grain of salt, and we hold a balanced view. <laughs> what when we <laughs> the results of carbon dating we're not you know we don't want to come across as rejecting science yes science is useful but it always needs to be placed in the proper context it's not absolute i i because christians will say carbon dating is not accurate and then when it seems to support their own view look carbon dating is accurate you have to have a balance we use it it's helpful but it's not the absolute and final word and so it's important to keep in mind Science needs to be put in its proper context. You know, when people say something has been proven with, as a scientific fact, um, you don't speak of 100% certainty in science. It's impossible because that's not what science gets you. The very method does, never gets you to certainty. And so we got to be careful how much, um, how much we give over to science. We usually give more than what science itself actually tries to get us. It's useful, but it's a, pra- it's a practical tool. You know, it's not an it's not an absolute truth finding tool. That makes sense. Right. 
Oh, yes, that makes complete sense. And uh, as I do more research on this, I find compelling evidence that, again, these archaeological dig sites do really mount up to Joshua, but uh, or, or not Joshua, but any other event. And, uh, you know, I, I think there was one thing that I was studying a little while back, but it was the Tower of Babel. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was a real thing because uh, some of the people back in, you know, earlier times reported on seeing it on their way to Babylon. Right. But but you have to be careful, too. It's a real thing because it's also recorded in the Bible. You see, a lot of people think that if something outside the Bible mentions it, that that somehow validates it because mm -hmm. there is that the Bible mentions certain things that it's not mentioned anywhere. Um, in in other sources, and only later to find that when people say, "See, look, the Bible is the only place that it mentions it," then they discover something and say, "Oh, actually, other people acknowledge it as well." So sometimes the Bible can be the only source where we have this information, and later demonstrated, "Well, the Bible was actually correct when everyone thought the Bible was wrong because it was the only source." This is in, a point in case with the the, the Hittite people. Group. Right, I, yeah, I've studied that. With that, yeah. So so we have to be careful. We don't think that certain things are true in the Bible merely by an external reference by some other source, because that's to give that external reference more authority than the Bible itself. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's very, that, that, that would make complete sense. And uh, many things uh, like you were saying have been proven uh, later in time. Uh, and, and, you know, the Bible mentioned it, but there's no proof of it outside the Bible. So you're right. The, the Bible does hold true. Uh, but but if you think about that real quick, you said it, it, there's no proof of it except the Bible, as though the Bible is not its own proof. <laughs> you see that, that there's an issue there. There's almost a, a bias. You know, people say, you know, one atheist told me, you know, demonstrate to me the truth of the Bible without using the Bible. And I said, I'd be happy to do that if you can demonstrate the truth of atheism only using the Bible. And he was like, well, that's <laughs> I'm like, well, so was your request. We can't ignore the Bible as a source of information. You see, when people say there's no proof outside the Bible, that already presupposes a bias against the Bible. In other words, it's not a reliable source. And that's a, that's a bias, right? right. And, and we sometimes engage in that kind of interaction. Um, and what we do is we, we kind of look at history as, as this, this sort of neutral thing where we need to look at these things in an unbiased fashion. Listen, when someone says, let's be neutral, they're being biased because they're biased against the Bible, which says we can't be neutral. Mm -hmm. And so committed to scripture, even when we do history, we need to hold firm to the word of God. And even if the world says there's no evidence for this, well, we hold on to God's truth. And because God's truth, well, tr all truth is God's truth. We know that information will come out later on. We don't need that information to confirm something that's in the Bible. Right. That, that's very true. And, uh, I, you know, like so, so much to me confirms the Bible and so little is confusing. Not that do doesn't confirm it. I, I would never say such a thing, because to be honest with you, I believe that sooner or later or e even in the very end or so, you know, it will come out to be true. And it, it's it's always true. It's always been true. But uh, there's different things I have questions on. And I think uh, w when I start to actually understand things better and I do more research, I, I get more questions, but I get more answers. And uh, right. I don't know if there's a certain way I should be researching because, you know, the way yeah. I research is I just <laughs> go on, you know, I look on uh, one site, then another site, then another right. site. And I, I use like. Can I, can I give you a, can I give you a really important advice? And it's going to sound really Christian-y, but it's 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 really important. Uh, sure. 
the way to do history as a Christian is to be fully committed and relentlessly consistent with this statement. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. That includes the very historical process. Because a lot of people engage in history as though it is this discipline and methodology that is independent of our religious commitments. When you, and here's an, this is important because we tend to be swayed this way and that by evidence, right? Well, I have evidence here. Well, now there's, doesn't seem like there's evidence here. And we're, we're, we're kind of flowing back and forth over evidence, evidence, evidence. We need to be committed to Christ and he is our unwavering foundation. And he is the Lord over evidence. Evidence itself can't make sense without Jesus Christ being Lord over it. So if you look at history through the lens of a Christian worldview, not only will you find that the study of history is very fruitful, but you'll also understand that history is to be interpreted in light of God's sovereignty and providence. And you begin to see the wonderful beauty of God's plan unfold throughout history. And so even in the the scholarly discipline of the study of history, you're now also being moved to worship the God that sovereignly moves throughout history. And so it is more enriching than just dry, in a dry way, kind of looking at historical events and, you know, kind of piecing these things together that have no real connection. Because for right. the Christian worldview, history is, is a united whole and an unfolding and unraveling of God's um, beautiful plan. Right. Th- that's very true. And, you know, I- I've always had this uh, tough problem, though, uh, because I've always like I always want like if I hear one side of the argument, I always want to go to the other side. I always want to see the other side and I sure. want to make sure that like I can uh, find arguments against the other side if uh, what I'm believing is true. And-, and that's always been my problem. And when I do that, I seem to get into more conundrum because I I, I guess I pursue so much of an answer that I go to 20 different sources and I have no answer. Right, right. And, and again, you have to understand, there's no scholar who, uh, again, this is just the nature of history. In the nature of history, you're dealing with high probability, except when you're dealing with divine history. You see, because when we do history from an, an autonomous, man-centered, finite perspective, you can only have probability. But when we take God's word at his word, and it's based upon the all-knowing God who created everything and moves history in the way that he does, the statements historically that are given to us in scripture, we can trust with, you know, knowing that we have a strong foundation for believing that because it is the omniscient God who tells us. You see, the secular historian doesn't presuppose that. And so history, by its very definition, must be probabilistic. All right. And there's, there's a problem with that since... Uh, since probability presupposes certainty, which comes from their own philosophical perspective, which is itself not subject to the historical investigation. So even the secular historian, you know, confronts his historical studies with a whole worldview that dictates how he interprets certain things. So uh, we need to recognize our own intellectual framework, which is which is itself grounded in the word of God, and then engage in the study of history unto the glory of God. I think that's hugely important. Never, never separate your studies from the lordship of Jesus Christ over that area. Once you do that, then you're swayed this way and that. Well, this evidence, that evidence, this evidence, that evidence. In reality, all evidence belongs to God. I don't think that, you know, history is one way of pointing to evidence. I think everything is evidence for God. And if everything's evidence for God, then there's no such thing as evidence against God. That's a strong point you make. Uh, really strong. I think that uh, a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of the things I've been researching over the 
probably four or five years I have been researching all this, I've found some really strong arguments for Christianity. Uh, And, and, you know, it's not even uh, just going out to sources and all. I mean, some of it can be, but, you know, it can just be as simple as just reading the Bible. I I think that when I actually read the Bible and I actually start to do the studies on it and not just read it from a standpoint where I didn't really know what I was reading. I was just reading it because I thought it was interesting, but I actually knew the background to it and the history, you know, like, uh, again, like with Paul being a Pharisee or uh, Luke being a Gentile or so, you know, all these different things seem to play a huge role into, you know, what the Bible is and the fact that it, it is the way it is. Uh, I find quite amazing. I, I think that uh, if it was any other book of some sort, like the Quran or so, it wouldn't be pieced together like this. It's not by other, uh, wit- you know, other witnesses. And uh, I, I don't know if you mind me bring this up, but uh, a while back when I was in Scouts, this one kid said uh, that Jesus, uh, you, you know, didn't speak his own testimony. So therefore he's crazy. He, he, he said that in a, another way. He said it in more of a mocking way. And I can't remember the exact words. But I thought to myself, uh, you know, like, what is he trying to say here? Jesus is illiterate. And I, I did research and all. And I realized, hold on a second. The whole point of Jesus not writing the Bible is just that. The apostles were there to actually give uh reasons you know the evidence right there reasons that jesus really was the son of god because if jesus wrote the whole thing is it really credible uh i mean it 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 would seem a lot more credible to me if other people wrote it uh and gave uh testimony to what jesus did than just jesus writing it yeah that's an that's a very interesting point i think that's a good perception on your part and it's very interesting when someone says jesus couldn't write my, my my first question is, and you you know you know this how? Well, people back then, it's like listen, there are people. I can go through a, to a group of people that are known to be illiterate generally. That doesn't mean everyone in that group literally can't read or can't write or whatever. I think people are presuming, especially when when people are putting so much purchase in this whole like empirical investigation. If you're so much into empirical investigation, why are you making statements about what Jesus can or cannot do that's not itself based on observation? I don't right. know what Jesus knew. I don't know how many languages he, he knew. Uh, he might have known more languages than we think he knew. He might have mm-hmm. been able to write, you know? Right. Um, I think where people are being very presumptuous and their, and their presuppositional bias comes out when they say stuff like that. Right. That That's definitely for sure. And, um, it, it, and I think that's really the way it is, like, in general. Like, I I, I try witness to people sometimes, like, at my school, and I go to a public school. So, like, when I witness to people, it's not really super easy all the time because a lot of people are very mocking. I mean, some people are very kind, and, like, they're, they're not even Christian, some of them, but they're very kind because they listen and they actually try to hear what I'm trying to say and not just uh, mo- mock me for what I'm yeah. saying. But then there's right. other kids that who are very mocking like i i d- don't even understand why they're mocking when really they didn't even hear my side yet you know right right and you know what and, and i'm actually happy that you said that because it's it's hard i work at a, a middle school high school but i've worked i've worked in the uh can you hear me i hear talking at the same time i'm sorry oh no i think uh there was a lag right there oh my bad i thought someone was trying to say something i didn't want to oh, no. Well, Maybe saying, someone else does want to get in there. Let's get in there five minutes and see if anybody else wants to ask anything. But go ahead, keep going. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say was I wanted to uh, – because I work in a school and I've worked with kids, middle school, high school, and kids can be rather harsh. <laughs> and I just want to commend you for standing up for the truth in that in that context. And don't be discouraged 
when people are mocking. Uh, one guy told me a quick story where um, two guys went hunting. One used one guy used a, a bow and arrow, and the other guy used a gun, and they were kind of kind of c competing with one another who can shoot the deer first. And and all of a sudden, you know, they heard a, a loud sound, and the guy ran. They ran over to see who who killed the deer first. And the guy with the arrow says, "I got him! I got him!" And his friend with the gun says, "No, you didn't. I have your arrow right over here." Um, and what actually happened was that the arrow went right through the deer. It went right through the deer. So it was actually the arrow that that hit. And later on, the uh, they found the deer up the road, and he ended up, you know, dead. And the point of the story that they were that they were bringing to me when I heard this story was that your arguments may not seem as though they've hit the mark. But if you actually present a strong case for the gospel, God can use the arrow of your words to actually produce really the, the intended result later on when that person is lying home in bed thinking about what you did. You know, for all intents and purposes, you failed because they rejected you and mocked you. But God still uses the wound of the arrow that you shot in their heart because you were using God's word and, and firmly standing up for it. So I, I encourage you and, uh, you know, don't judge success. In defending your faith um, by what you can see empirically, because God works in the heart. Oftentimes, He's doing things you can't see. Right. I'm. I'm gonna let you guys go, and, and that's a, that's a great point. And I'm gonna have to reflect on everything that I heard uh, over these past uh, few minutes. And uh, I, I'm gonna let you guys go though for a night. And, and God bless you guys, and have a great God night. Good, good talk. Thank good you. Conversation. Thank Does anybody you, else have any good? Anybody else have any comments or questions you want to ask? We have Morgan in here, Elias. I believe Christopher wanted to talk. Go ahead, Christopher. Can you hear me? Let me uh, unmute him. I had to mute him earlier because of something. Okay, great. Christopher, you should be able to talk now. Okay. Yeah, This I have a question for you, Matt. I know you on your website you mentioned that you're a continuationist in regards to the apostolic sign gifts, right? Yes. Why do, okay. you, say, why do you say apostolic sign gifts? I guess... In regards to that debate, uh, that's the term I've heard, at least, or, at least among people I follow. Well, if you say apostolic sign gifts, then that automatically means that they're for the apostles. So I would okay. just say the charismatic gifts are for today. Okay. Well, I guess my question is more in regards to, from since you're from a continuationist perspective, how would you respond to a guy who claimed to have seen like a, a demon attracted to some burnt eggs that were at the guy's house? Wait, I can't understand you. He says what? Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, a few weeks ago, there was a, a Bethel church pastor um, who wrote, wrote an article claiming that um, he saw demons in his house because the, the demon was attracted to some burnt eggs. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's, it's crazy. It's it a national article, Matt. Yeah, this is silly. Yes. No. Uh, so, I'm, okay. I guess... The short story is I'm a, I come from the cessationist standpoint, so I, I would have I would I would know how to respond to, to that. But I'm actually curious to understand your perspective. How would you respond to a claim like that? I say, show me in the Bible where it says demons are attracted to burnt eggs. <laughs> I mean, uh, just show me the Bible. You know, <laughs> that was hard for you to say, wasn't it, Matt? <laughs> yeah, like they're burnt eggs. Well, what happens to burnt toast? You know, does burnt toast repel them? If, if if someone saw a demon, how could they actually observe the reason why the demon's there? How do they know the demon's yeah. there because of the burnt eggs? There's so many things wrong with that. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think I don't think there's anything to do with the gifts. 
I mean, what do, what do spiritual gifts have to do with the reality yeah. of humans and that they interact with 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 people? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. And let me ask you, why are you a cessationist? I guess when it comes to the um, the sign gifts and stuff, I guess I've been convinced by scripture through like um, people from like say Master Seminary and also through my own study that yeah, wait, 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 wait. You're, are... you're overmodulated or something. Let me turn you down or something because oh. it's hard to understand. Okay, now say something. Okay, um, basically from First Corinthians fourteen, all those passages, I. I've just been thinking about the. Well, do you know of any? Yep. Do you know of any verses in the Bible that say the charismatic gifts are going to cease? I thought in First Corinthians fourteen, like when you go, like when they talk about. Yeah, I guess it's been a while since I've been in that in that chapter, but I thought it was somewhere in there. First Corinthians thirteen, the perfect when the perfect comes, the imperfect shall pass away. Basically. Yeah. Here, let me show you something. Um. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 1, 7. I'm going to read it to you. I have it memorized, but I want to read it to you. I want you to understand what it's saying. So that you do, are not lacking in any gift as you await for the revealing, for the return, for the revelation of our Lord Jesus. You're not lacking in any gift. Charisma. The Corinthian church is written to the Corinthians, but to all of us also because it's universal that you're not to lack any gift while you're waiting for Jesus to come back, any charismatic gift, all right? Yeah. Now, you, you, you see that? Yeah. I... Okay, so right from the very beginning, what Paul the Apostle does is he equates the continuation of the, of the gifts to the issue of the return of Christ, doesn't he? So that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking in any gift. The word gift there is charisma, where revelation is apocalypsis. So we're not to lack any gift, any charisma, awaiting eagerly the re revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Are you with me so far? Yes, I am. Okay. So what Paul, the apostle, is doing is equating, and there's not equating, but relating the two of them uh, together. Okay, there's, uh, let me get this, okay. There's, uh, this, you know, not lack, lacking any charisma while you're waiting for the revelation of, of Christ, his return. That's what it's talking about, all right? Okay. Now, just so you know, the wages of, of sin is, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The word gift there is charisma. The wages of sin is death, but the free charisma of God is eternal life. If all the charismatic gifts have ceased, then there's a problem. This is why the guys who formate, formate, wow, formulate the argument will say the apostolic sign gifts. What they'll do is they'll say this is what they are by definition. That's a problem. That's not what it's there for. <clears throat> okay. Now, when you go to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, it says, and I'll read it to you, and I'll show you something. Let the scriptures speak. I would debate MacArthur on this if you would have me debate. First um, Corinthians 13, 8. Uh, let's see, 9. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So the perfect that they, they're going to say is the, the completion of the Bible, right? Yeah, that's typically what they would say, yes. Yeah. So when the Bible's completed, 
Okay, that's what he's talking about. Okay. When as a child, I spoke as a child, etc. We can skip verse 11 because it talks about putting away childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So when the perfect comes, then we see face to face. When the Bible's completed, then we see face to face. That makes sense? Now, when you say face-to-face, are you talking about, like, the return of Christ thing that you mentioned earlier or something differently? There you go. You're asking the right questions. I'm just saying right now, when the, per- when the Bible is completed, is that when we see face-to-face? I'm just asking the question. Or how about this? Now, I know in part, but then, when the Bible is completed, I will know just as I have been fully known. Well, just so it happens, when you do a, f- a search for the word face-to-face, um, uh, it so uh, let's see. It almost always means a personal encounter. It's when God references it to himself in Genesis 32, 30, Exodus 33, 11, Numbers 12, 8, Deuteronomy uh, 5, 4, Jeremiah 32, 4. Uh, it speaks of personal encounter in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 10, 1, 2 John 12, 3, 3 John 14. So the perfect, if it's the Bible, are we seeing face to face? Or is the perfect the return of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1, 7 seems to allude? When Jesus returns, then we will see face to face. That makes sense. All right? Also, the second part, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Jesus does not know everyone. Did you know that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I hold to the five points of okay. doctrines of grace and stuff. So, yeah, I agree with you. Okay. So he just when he says, I don't know you, it means you're not saved. So if he says, I know you, it means you are saved. We see that pattern in Scripture. And I can go through it more, but okay. So that's where we will be fully known. When we find the phrase of being known by God, we only find it in reference to the believers in a salvation sense. This is how the Bible uses it. So when Jesus returns, the fullness of our knowing and having been fully known by Christ will be manifested. Not when the Bible is completed. So the cessationist position doesn't work exegetically, in my opinion. All right. Plus, not that this makes doctrine, but you can find charismatic experiences all over the world. In third world countries, things happen. People say, well, they're not documented. Well, yes, they are. And I can tell you, for example, that once, and I did this myself very clearly. I took a girl home from a Bible study. She wanted a book. So I stopped it off at my place and gave her the book. We got talking. Her name was Tony. She was short, blonde hair. And she said that she was going to go to Australia in two weeks to go on a mission. Out of nowhere. I just said, you're not going to go. You're going to stay. In five months, you're going to meet a guy. He's going to become your spiritual mentor. In 18 months, you and he are going to have a special bond, and you're going to do mission work together. And then this presence was, so to speak, gone. I couldn't believe what I just said. Two weeks later, she got on the plane and went to uh, a jet, went, went to Australia. She got off the plane and, or the jet and realized she wasn't supposed to be there. She said it just was solid she just wasn't supposed to be there she got right back in the plane and came right back home five months later she met a guy and he became her spiritual teacher at 18 months they got married and they went and did missionary work together in england now the reason i'm saying it is this isn't hearsay i did this and hopefully you can trust me that i'm I'm intelligent uh spiritual uh not lying to you etc 
And I would ask a person, I've done this before, if this, if charismatic gifts are, are done, how is it possible for me to do it? This is not me saying I read it in a book third hand. I did it. And I'll, I'll say, so how do you explain that? And what they usually do is say, well, I can't exegete your experience. I can't re refer to it. In other words, it doesn't fit in their worldview, so they just dismiss it with a sentence. I guess probably my, my question for you then is, like, how did you know they got that information directly from God versus, like, um, your own deducing um, capabilities? Uh, well, if, if that's the case, then I, I should be in a, a Las Vegas show where I could deduce things. But I can tell you that what happened was I remember a presence other than me. And I just knew and I spoke. Cool. Well, Matt, could, real quick, he just said, how do you know you, could, you didn't deduce it? When you deduce, you have premise one, premise two, and based on those, you deduce. But based on your experience, there is no information that could have been given to you that you can deduce that specific information. That's right. So it's not the same as deduction. You're, you're literally getting information that you could not have known, nor could have deduced based on just driving someone right. home. You know. yeah. Five months and then 18 months. Uh, it's just not possible, right? So, and this happened, and uh, I've had other things like this happen. I can talk about this and say, there's my personal experience. Not that, not that it makes uh, doctrinal truth. But when you look at what the Word of God says, uh, it never says that the charismatic gifts are going to cease when the Bible's completed. You have to assume that the word perfect means the completion of the Bible. But if that's the case, then how are we fully known when the Bible's completed? How's that the case? Uh, how is it that it says when the Bible is completed, that's when we see face to face. How does that work? It doesn't make sense to say it that way. And first Corinthians one, seven, uh, we are not to lack any charisma while we're waiting for the return of Christ. So, uh, I just, <laughs> and plus you're reformed, right? Yes, I am. Okay. Here, watch this. Okay. You know who John Knox was, right? Yeah, Scott's Presbyterian, um, did a lot of open-air preaching back in the day. Yeah, he's a hardcore Calvinist, right? Yes. Uh, John Knox was an eminent wrestler in God, of, with God in prayer. All right, I'm going to read you something. I'm going to take a bit here. He was likewise, likewise warm and empathetic in his preaching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, as an instance of this, when he was... Oh, let me back up. He was likewise warm and empathetic in his preaching in which such prophetical expressions as dropped from him had the most remarkable accomplishment. As an instance of this, when he was confined at the castle of St. Andrews, he foretold both the manner of their surrender and their deliverance from the French galleys. At another time, he thus addressed himself to her, Queen Mary, husband, Lord uh, Henry, Lord Darnley, while in the king's seat at the high church in Edinburgh. Quote, have you for the pleasure of that dainty dame cast a psalm book into the fire? The Lord shall strike both head and tail. Uh, end quote. This is what John Knox said. Both king and queen died violent deaths. He likewise said when the castle of Edinburgh held out for the queen against the regent that, quote, the castle should spew out the captain with the shame since he not, that he would not come out over the gate, but over the wall that the tower called Davis Tower should run like a sand glass, which was a few uh, fulfilled a few years later. Uh, Kirkwoodly being obliged to come over the wall on a ladder with a staff in his hand, and uh, said for work of castle running down the sand brick. Uh, the truth, uh, okay, he said. Uh, 
but he's seen pulled. Let's see, get to the sentence. Go, he said, on the day of this, David Lindsay, he, he spoke, oh, well, brother, I thank God I desire all this day to have had to you, etc. Go, I pray, and tell them for me in the name of God that unless he leave that evil course wherein he has entered, neither shall the rock, meaning Castle Edinburgh, uh, nor the carnal wisdom of man, whom he counteth half a god, uh, but he shall be pulled out that next and brought down over the wall with shame, and his carcass shall be hung before the sun, so God has assured me. This is John Knox, and that God is speaking a prophecy to him, that God had assured this of John Knox. The truth of this seemed to appear in a short time thereafter, for it was thought that Lethington poisoned himself to escape public punishment. He lay unburied in the steeple of Leith until his body was quite corrupted. But Sir William Kirkedley of Grange was on the 3rd of August next executed by the cross of Edinburgh. Accordingly, when he was cast over the ladder with his face toward the east, when he present uh, thought was dead, lifted his hands, etc. Just like he said. Um. That's George. That's John Knox. John Fleming in 1630 to 1694. Uh, he left behind a writing, and in, in it, the he talked about the strange and extraordinary impression I had of an audible voice in the church at night. When being a child, I got up to the pulpit, calling me to make haste. The extraordinary dream and marvelous vision I had twice repeated with the inexpressible joy after the same. The dream at Bousset, wherein I got such expression warning as to my wife's removal. That's talking about her death, which the Lord marvels with the Lord's marvelous appearance and presence the Thursday after at St. Johnston. The great and signal confirmations gave me at my wife's death, the great extraordinary voice, etc. I can go on and on. These are called the Presbyterian divines. I got this information out of the book called The Scots Worthies by John Howey of Loch Goyne, Edinburgh, London, printed in 1870. Okay. And uh, it I, talks about these things. So here's a question. Would those people... With those people, John Knox, someone's. Is there someone in the back there? Someone might turn their mic off, or whatever. Okay. So, I mean, tell you a little bit of a story. Thanks. When I was at seminary and um, I lost my pastorate over this issue, and I went back to SEM, Westminster Theological Seminary. And they had a meeting on the charismatic gifts. They almost asked me to come and speak and defend the charismatic side, but they didn't, which they had. I would have been engaged in a debate with them, a polite debate with professors. And they had some excellent guys there, and they presented information of, um, of the cessation of the gifts. I had this documentation that I just read to you and another one, which I haven't read to you yet. But I had the documentation in my hand in a notebook. And I, I raised my hand and I asked these guys, I said, I have in my hand right here a, excerpts from a book I got behind that wall. Behind that wall, I pointed, was the library. I got the book, the Scotsworthies, from that library right back on the other side of that wall. And in that book, it talks about George Wisher, John Fleming, um, George, uh, John, John, what was it? Oh, who was the other guy? The three guys. Anyway, I said, I have these books, okay? And I said, it talks about them experiencing the charismatic gifts, prophesying, words of knowledge, the whole bit. 
these are Calvinists who did this. I said, how do you explain this? And you know what they said? Well, yes. They said, well, we haven't really looked at it too much. We're not sure what to do with it. And that was it. They knew about it, and it didn't fit their paradigm, so they basically ignored it. And the next version of the book, Scotsworthy's, had those things omitted out of them. Now, why is that reform people would do that? I guess it kind of depends. You know, sometimes people are convinced in their own positions, so they may not think the other side has anything worthy to offer. I know, um, I know, I know for me, it's been a little while since I've done research in this top in, in this particular topic, but, um, yeah, I guess that might be why. Well, you check it out, you know, and, and see. But what does the Bible say? That we're not to lack any charisma while we're waiting for the return of Christ. Now, here's another thing you can do. Just check this out. I did this. Um, what you could do is actually go to, for example, you could print it up. You can um, just copy the text of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Just put them into a Word document, whatever, just as an experiment. And to keep this mindset, you cross out the verses that no longer apply for us today because if the charismatic gifts have ceased. So you don't seek to prophesy. Nope, can't do that now. Uh, word of knowledge is for the church. Nope, cross that out. And you'll find that if you do that, there's an awful lot of stuff to cross out. Then I got a question. What is the only Protestant New Testament, excuse me, Protestant contemporary teaching that invalidates large portions of Scripture? Cessationism. Okay. Uh, before I forget, when you talk about words of knowledge, is there a particular like is there a particular verse within like First Corinthians that comes to the term word of knowledge? Just so I know where, where you're coming from. Yeah, First Corinthians fourteen, word of knowledge, word of wisdom. There's First Corinthians twelve, Romans twelve, and what you can do is you can go through those chapters and you can look and see what the scriptures teach. Okay. But no one knows exactly what those are. But let me give an example of something. I was at a swap meet ministry, which I did for two and a half years back in the early eighties. And I, my roommate, Dave, and I uh, would go out there at O-Dark 30 and set up a booth and pass out literature. We uh, went out into the marketplace. That's what, that's what we were doing. Dave, still a friend of mine, I can call him up. I can call him up on the phone, put him on speakerphone, and he can tell you the story. And I was talking to a guy, and I remember it very clearly. This guy was telling me how um, he would no longer believe in God. And I was just talking to him, and all of a sudden this presence. And I looked at this guy and I started telling him things that only he knew in his relationship with God and the things that God was pointing to him, pointing out to him in his own heart that he was denying before God. And I remember just the knowledge of knowing this. I don't know how to describe it. It was a presence. I was there saying it and I knew it for a fact. And then all of a sudden this presence just stopped. I was stunned. And this guy literally stumbled backwards. His mouth was just, he was like, he was stunned. And he didn't say a thing. And he, I'm not kidding when I say he stumbled. He actually stumbled backwards. He was stunned. And he just walked off. And I just turned to my roommate. And I said, David, did, did you feel that? And he said, Yes, I did. What was that? I said, I don't know. 
Well, I was talking to Dave. He's still a friend of mine. Talking to Dave about this last year, and he told me one other thing. He said, Matt, he goes, because I remember he was sitting down. He said, Matt, don't you remember what happened? I said, what? He said, while you were speaking, there was something around you as though light was moving around you, like a heat wave, as light was kind of being altered. I said, really? I said, I don't remember that. He goes, yes, I saw it. What do you do with that? I guess when you talk about the presence, I know you mentioned that in two of the stories you've mentioned. Um, how do you know for sure that the presence was from the Lord, or how do you know that the presence existed to begin with? Well, I know the presence was there because I was there and I experienced it. All right? Well, how do you want me to prove it? Want me to write it on a piece of paper and sign it to you and mail it to you? See? No, that's what it is. Um, if it wasn't from the Lord, then what was it? I guess for me, I guess um, even though even though I do trust you and I don't, and obviously would not accuse you of anything or whatnot, it just seems like whenever I hear like um, other charismatics talk about them feeling the presence of the Lord or whatnot, I tend to be really skeptical of that because I know we all have emotions, we all have feelings and stuff like that. I guess for me, my first go-to um, would be like, was there some sort of was it just some sort of feeling you had up, or was there something that the Lord the Lord put in you like? that you all were able to deduce together, that, that'd be my first go-to. Let me just tell you, I can't give you my experience, but I'll tell you this. If it happened to you, you'd never doubt it. That's all I can tell you. All right. Um, it's like being in love. You know what it is when it happens. How do you know? You just do. Well, prove it to me. It doesn't work like that. So the issue, though, I'm just giving you experiences. Look, I've got a master's of divinity. I'm an ordained minister. I've been defending the faith for 39 years. I'm just telling you that there's somebody here who's reputable, who's had these experiences, not third-hand, second-hand. I did this. I'm not using those as proofs of anything. I'm just saying, here we go. What do we do with these things? We have to compare them to Scripture. Well, the issue is, of course, does the Scripture affirm or deny that the gifts continue? Well, uh, they, they don't. They don't say they stop, except when Jesus returns. That seems to be the implication of 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 1 Corinthians 13. And if the gifts have ceased, then go through your Bible and mark out the verses that no longer apply. Cool. And seriously. And, you know, don't, and also they'll say, well, if it's inspired of God, then it, it threatens the canon. No, it doesn't. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, they were talking very clearly about things that were coming from the Lord. And they weren't canonized. So, you know, the, the arguments that they have, it's ridiculous. And another thing is, this is just my observation, that the people who hold a cessationism, I don't see them out there risking anything. I don't see them out there risking in evangelistic contexts, going out there day after day and something happens. Not that that's, that's a guarantee of anything. But I'll tell you, there are lots of stories of people when you're doing nothing but trusting God and things happen. Not that it's going to happen all the time. But Calvinists, we Calvinists, we often tend to sit in our chairs and then we pro pontificate about doctrine. And we're comfortable and we live in America and everything's nice. And we turn the lights on and we don't have to pray for miracles. We've got everything we need. So let's exegete uh, very confidently why the gifts have ceased. Why? Because when the perfect comes, that's the Bible, and then we don't need it anymore. Because those are revelatory gifts. Those are sign gifts. That's what they'll say. And then you can, if you want, you can go to my debates. I did a public debate. Um, oh, what's yeah, you name? Know, with Wal uh, Waldron, wasn't that like a year or two ago? I'm sorry? 
Uh, I know you did one with Sam Waldron. Like, was it a yeah. year or two ago in Houston? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I heard. I heard about that one. You can check it out, you know, and, and I'm not saying I got it all down and I destroyed him. I'm not going to, you know, no, no, no. You know, we had lunch together or dinner together. He's a nice guy. But I'm just telling you, look at what the scripture says. What does First Corinthians 1, 7 say? That you're not to lack any charisma while you're waiting for the apocalypsis of Jesus. Okay. What do they do with that? Well, I guess how do we, like when it talks about any gift, how do we know that words of knowledge are part, is part of the any? I'm sorry, what? Okay. Um, uh, I, I guess couldn't understand question... you. It's a muffled connection. I didn't send the words. Okay, sorry. Um, is this better? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So we, you were talking about the First Corinthians 1-7 with the charisma. When it talks about the... How do we know that the words of knowledge fall under the charisma category? Because it says not like any charisma. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you. If you're looking at 1 Corinthians 1 7, okay, I'll look at the Greek, okay? And what it says is, let me start at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which He's given you in Christ Jesus. Now, some people will say this is only to the Corinthian church, but let me back up. I'm going I'm to answer some stuff here. Some people say, no, this is only to the Corinthian church and only applied to the Corinthian church for that time. Okay, now start at verse 1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So that makes it universal. Would you agree? Yes. Good. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Now he's speaking to the Corinthians specifically, no problem. Even as a testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus. Now, there's ways you could interpret this. You could say, you're not lacking any charismatic gift while you're waiting for Jesus to return, but it doesn't mean that once they, the apostles die, that the gift cease when the, when the canon is completed because they're waiting during that whole time. That's what's going, that's what they'll say. That's the best argument they've got out of that, to say, yes. no, it's only for the Corinthian church that he was talking about. And so, therefore, when the apostles died, the, the canon was completed. See, during that process, they're waiting for Jesus to return. So they're not lacking any charismatic gift during that period of time until the apostles died and the, the canon is completed. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. That's not what it says, though. So that you're not lacking any gift while you're waiting for the return of Jesus and or the apostles die and the canon is completed, who will then also confirm to the, to the end. That's not what it says. What they'll do is they'll say, this is what it means, and they'll read all the stuff into there. Why do the Calvinists do that? They should know better than that. What does it say? You're not lacking any charisma, awaiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus. Is it only for the Corinthians, or is it for everybody? If they want to say it's only for the Corinthians, then let's continue. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That could be the Corinthians only. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with the Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that only for the Corinthians? Of course not. 
It's called, that's, that's for everybody. This is a universal letter. So now are we to say, well, uh, verse 1 and 2 is, is universal. Verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 are only for the Corinthians. Verse 9 is now universal. Then we have what's called the JEDP theory, Yahwist, Elohist, uh, Petraeus, and Deuteronomist, uh, the Graf Wellhausen uh, theory of the Pentateuch, that there's four different authors. You see, they wrote for this. That's how you tell, because it meant this and this sentences, this and this sentences, this and this sentences. The same kind of thing. But what they're doing now is saying, well, look, it just means this uh, one issue for them at that point, but the other verses are, you know. It, it, it. Anyway, so what Paul's doing is relating the charisma to the return of Christ. I've got a strong argument that this means it's universal and therefore not to lack any charisma. And if the charismatic gifts have ceased, then eternal life has ceased. Now, here's something else to show you. And this is not what you call the best argument, but I want to show it to you. Are you familiar with Abraham and Isaac, right? Yes. And how Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham offered up Isaac, right? Yes. Be familiar that that's a typology of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, not kind of know that. It's a, a picture of like substitutionary atonement when they, the ram comes. Um, and let me explain some stuff here for you. I want to show you something. Okay. This is a roundabout way to do it, but it, and it's a lesser uh, support. But God said to Abraham, take your only begotten son, Isaac. Okay. Offer him on a hill. Jesus crucified on the hill, and most scholars think it's the very same hill. Uh, they uh, Isaac took a donkey to the place of sacrifice. So did Jesus. Two men went with them, with Isaac, the father, Abraham, and Eleazar, the servant, the helper, the servant. Okay, you get the typology? Yes, I do. Okay. Three-day journey to get to the hill. Jesus was in the grave three days. Isaac carried wood on his back up the hill. Jesus carried wood on his back up the hill. And when Isaac said to the father, to Abraham, where is the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. Abraham, excuse me, Isaac was offered on wood. Jesus was offered on wood. So? They caught a, a ram in a thicket of thorns. Jesus bore kind of thorns on his brow. He said to Isaac, your seed will be multiplied. We are the multiplied seed of, of Jesus. It says in, in Genesis twenty two nineteen. it says, Abraham went down. The son didn't. It didn't say that Isaac did not come down. It just says, and Abraham went down. It doesn't mention Isaac coming down from the hill. Jesus did not come down from the cross. Isaac represented the, the, the Jesus, it's a typology. Yeah. You know, Jesus didn't come down. You see, the, the typology is good. Now, they go down to the bottom of the hill, and the servant gets a bride for the son. Genesis 24, 1 through um, 4. The bride was a beautiful virgin. Genesis 24, 16, we're the virgin of, of God. And, getting all this way to this, the servant offered ten gifts to the bride. The servant offered 10 camel loads, 10 gifts to the bride. Now, if you go through Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, etc., and you look up the listing of, of the gifts, you'll find two categories, two types. 
charismatic gifts and non-charismatic gifts. Non-charismatic gifts are helps, administrations, things like that. Uh -huh. Okay. Charismatic gifts, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, etc. Guess how many charismatic gifts are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 31, where, where the charismatic gifts are listed. Guess how many are listed? If I guess 10. That's a good guess. And that's what I guessed. But it's not correct. There's only nine. And that really puzzled me. I couldn't figure out. Well, wait a minute. Why would there, if the typology is so good, why are there only nine listed? It took me a while to figure it out, and I finally did. Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life. That's the greatest gift to the bride. That's 10 charismatic gifts. Now, people say to me, the charismatic gifts have ceased. I chuckle. One, because that's not what the Bible teaches. They have to read into the text. Well, the perfect is the completion of the canon. Oh, and when the canon's closed, that's when we know perfectly. That's where we're known as we're fully known. You never find that scripture or that phraseology used in reference to a book, but you do find it in reference to uh, salvation knowledge. And face-to-face -face is not used of, of anything other than relationship. Is that how we have it when we see, see the Bible? The Bible's completed. Now we have a relationship with God? No, a relationship through Christ. And it's the return of Christ when the perfect comes, when the completion of all things occurs. That's Jesus' return, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 1.7. It makes solid sense that my position is the right one. And if it's not, then John Knox, George Wishart, John Fleming would not be welcome in most, most Reformed churches today, would they? I guess so. I guess, I mean, that would, I guess going off of what your logic is, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Thank you. For, thank you for letting me know about your position. Your position, and I guess I'll definitely be looking in those First Corinthians um, sure. verses and go from there. I really okay. appreciate that. Sure. No problem. Yeah. Man. yeah. yeah. All right. You guys have a good night. Okay. Right. Hey, here's one. one th I'm going to read one more thing. This is from. Uh, George Wishart uh, from 1513 to 1546. Uh, and it's in that book, Scotch Um When he had finally captured, was captured at Mermiston, he was taken to St. Andrews and burned at the stake, blah, 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 blah. He died for the faith. The, and this was written, the plague being now considerably abated, he determined to pay a visit to the town of Montrose. He received a letter directing him from his intimate friend, the Laird of Kinear, acquainting him that he had taken a sudden sickness and requested him to come to him with all diligence. Upon this, he immediately set out for his journey, attended by some honest friends in Montrose, who, out of affection, would accompany him part of the way. They had not traveled above a quarter of a mile when all of a sudden he stopped, saying to the company, I am forbidden by God to go this journey. Will some of you be pleased to ride to yonder place and see what you find? For I apprehend there's a plot against my life. Whereupon he returned to the town and they also went forward to the place, found about 60 horsemen ready to intercept him, etc., etc. How do you have this? Charismatic gifts don't work, do they? Yet in our own reformed history, we find the contrary. Anyway. Yeah, 
I never read that before. That was really good. Yeah. It does, and I understand, you know, the hardcore cessationist reform person will say, well, that's not the Bible and that's not our standard. And I don't think that's what you're saying. But we're not, dis you're not discarding evidence that supports your particular understanding of those texts. I mean, <laughs> you know, if the charismatic gifts were for today, how would you know it if you don't allow, you know, the evidence for that to support what the text is teaching? You know, I was talking to some uh, reform guys, and I think I don't forgot what denomination been so long. And I said, do you guys realize that you wouldn't even allow John Knox to preach in your pulpit? They go, that's right. From what they were reading about the charismatic stuff. Yeah. I said, oh, so you're better than John Knox. There's actually stories of these guys, these Presbyterian divines. They would pray. One guy prayed for eight hours a day. And one guy, there's reports of, um, of him saying, I'm going to go down and spend time with the Lord in the garden. And they would go down in the garden and witnesses would say there was a figure walking with him in the garden. Now what are we going to do with that? Okay. But yeah. yeah, it's a touchy subject for me. It's a little bit, it cost me a great deal. I haven't told the story too often about what happened and how much it cost me, but it did. And uh, it's one of those very, very uh, dramatic times of my life. Mm -hmm. Extremely so. And years of consequence and effect because of, of my decision to be truthful to what I believe the word of God said. Just the same as the cessationists do the same thing. But it cost me. It didn't cost them. Mm -hmm. It cost me. And uh, so it's a still, you know, I guess I should admit a little bit of a sore spot still with me. But I don't hold any grudges against anybody. But I just do not believe the cessationist position is, can be biblically defended. Mm. Interesting stuff. Uh, Carrie Benj, do I? Oh, we got to get going here. Uh, we Matthew. do have Morgan, though. Morgan has been waiting for a bit with a question. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Morgan. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Are you able to hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys so much um, for what you're doing. This is truly in divine order. Um, I didn't know about this until like one minute before I logged on. So I'm just <laughs> going to ask these questions um, really quickly, and then I'll probably be back every Thursday for as long okay. as I possibly can. So just thank you guys so much. Um, yeah. And normally, Eli's not the other guy. Normally, we have a really ugly guy. We've been oh. doing it with. <laughs> I'm, so here. I'm here. I'm the ugly guy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he'll be back on so, next week. But anyway, go ahead. It doesn't matter if you're ugly, as long as you can help me defend the faith. So it doesn't there matter. There we go. Amen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, just more recently, um, I've just found myself surrounded by a lot of non-believers who are willing to engage in conversations with me. And so I've been looking more into, you know, studying uh, apologetics and defending the faith. And I have my toes in it in some regard, but Good. the questions are getting deeper and deeper. And so, um, yeah, this is, that's what I said right on time. So just one of the questions that I was recently asked was about the lost books of the Bible. And of course, you know, it always just kind of comes back to how can we trust the word of God and mm -hmm. um, the person, and I'm going to uh, misquote it, was just basically saying, if there were if there were books that were, were left out of it, how can we, you know, say for sure that this is what, that the books that we have is what God intended to be in the Bible, since 
man got together and decided what went into it. So yeah. I'm just looking for a way to kind of come against that, even just start my own study around that. Sure. Um, there are no lost books of the Bible. Okay. So for people to say the lot, what about the lost books of the Bible presupposes that God wasn't capable of ensuring that what he wanted to be scripture and included in the Bible was there and mere people were able to thwart his divine intention. That's a presupposition that they're having. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to say there's lost books, lost books in the Bible, say, show them to me. Now, if you go to my CARM website and you look up lost books of the Bible, I've got articles dealing with this kind of stuff. I just and read so, it. <laughs> yeah, well, good. Now, so let me, so there's ways of looking at things. But when they say that, I say, no, there's no lost books. Are you saying God made a mistake? You're saying God's going, no, it's supposed to be in there. Oh, don't, oh man, dang it. Oh, boy. Dang, is that what you're saying about God? That's what I tell him. Is that what you're doing? The infinite God of the universe can have his inspired word collected, and people are going to get Is that what you're saying? You don't have, you don't, apparently you don't understand what the Christian God is. Let's talk about who the Christian God is, the one who ordains the location of every atom in, every uni- in all the universe simultaneously in all time and all places. This is the God you're talking about, and he couldn't keep his word together. No, it doesn't work like that. Now, here's something else for you. Um, this is fun. Okay. okay. <laughs> now, when Jesus, uh, at the, in John 21, and he, um, told the disciples to cast his net on the other side of the boat, he did that because at the end of the, um, the ministry, right. And they caught 153 fish, mm-hmm. right. Why 153? Please tell me. <laughs> that's a good response <laughs> well the word fish is the word ichthus right now didn't jesus say i'll make you fishers of men yes yes he did okay it just so happens in the four gospels i'll talk about the four gospels here a little bit the four gospels you take away the 5,000 that were fed, the 4,000 that were fed in the four separate Gospels. Guess how many people received a blessing from Jesus in the four Gospels? How many individuals? 153. Yes. Wow. See, the prophetic gifts, they still, <laughs> she knew the number. <laughs> That's right. So 153 individuals. Now, wait a minute. How did that happen with those four Gospels? Okay. How did that happen with the four Gospels? Now, I'm going to show you something. I have to share the screen to do this. Okay. Got to get to it. Okay, here we go. What I'm going to do is, I don't want to see my ugly face. Well, you already see my ugly face. (laughs) All right. Come on, slimeball. You can do it, computer. Oh, man. Come on. So now what I, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to share my screen. I'm going to do this. Hold on. I just lost my my window. There we go. All right. Now, share the screen. I'm going to share that. And come on. Can you guys see it? Yes. All right. Now, this is what's really interesting. The arrangement of the men around the tabernacle of the wilderness. Okay. Get this. Got it. Okay. So, 
to the west, 108,100 men, 151,000 to the south, 157,000 to the north, and 186,000. There's more written on the tabernacle than any other topic in the entire Bible. It goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. Now, also, just so you know, it says in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Mm. Okay? Now, if we do a proportional arrangement, that's what we get. You see the cross? Yes. That's really interesting. A proportional arrangement of the men numbered gives you a cross with a tabernacle in the middle. The tabernacle represents Christ on that cross. Four groups of people. There were there were uh, the east of the tabernacle. There were there was Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. That's there are twelve tribes of Israel arranged around the. Uh, arranged around uh, the tabernacle, four groups. There were three groups to the west, three groups to the south, three groups to the north, three groups to the east. That's 12 tribes, all right? Mm -hmm. And they had four banners, lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. Those are flags that represented them, okay? Lion, man, ox, eagle. I learned them this by saying a lion, ox, eagle, and a man. That's how I learned to say that at mm -hmm. order. Ezekiel 110, that's where the form of their faces in Ezekiel, the vision of the four-faced creature, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Interesting. In Revelation 4-7, the first creature was like a lion, the second creature was like a calf or like an ox, like a man and an eagle. Mm. Okay. So, so guess what the four Gospels were known as in code? Lion, ox, eagle, and man. Mm. I think God knows how to keep his words secure. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not only that, but each gospel portrays Jesus in a, in a different way. Yes. And that yeah. one image that Matt just showed uh, where, where it says Jesus was... Uh, in Matthew, he presents himself as a king. Right. And... That's, and yeah, right. Go back to that one. And John has the eagle. Yeah, as a man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, as a man. So, right. So, yeah, Matthew. Let me show you some more. Yeah. Uh, anyway, here's the list out of those out of the four gospels of the individuals that received the blessing, totaling 153. Wow. Now, yeah. Here, let me back up. Okay. Check this out. I'm gonna have fun. Okay, might as well do this. Backing up, I'm backing up. Ding, ding, ding. I, I get into the prophecies, won't do that, it'll take too long. Let me get into some other stuff. Um, who's got the noise going? Got the noise. You got making noises and stuff. Matt, while you're looking for that, I just want to suggest to Morgan an awesome book on the topic of the canon and how we know, no, we got the right books and things like that. Yeah. You want to check out the book, The Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. He is the man on this topic. That's one of the best books on the topic of yep. the canon and how it was developed. The Canon Revisited by Michael Krieger. I'm reading it too. Yeah. But it's a little heady. I'm extracting information out of it to break it down for people. Yeah. He's but, got yeah. lectures too on, on, on RTS and on YouTube kind of summarizing each point, but definitely a helpful right. book. Thank okay. you so much. 
So check this out. Look at this. In, Ge in, uh, in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Hebrew. Notice this. There's seven words. The number of the letters is 28, which is four times seven. The first three words are 14, which is two times seven. The last four words are 14. The fourth and fifth words are seven. The sixth and seventh words are seven letters. Uh, the nouns God, heaven, and earth equals 14 letters total. And the words remaining are 14 letters. Not a big deal, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's too much complicated. Watch yeah. this. So here's a genealogy of, of Matthew, of Jesus, in Matthew 1 through 17 in Greek. Okay. There it is in English. All right. Not a big deal. Well, each Greek letter is also a number. Yeah. So when you, it's called a gematria. So, for example, the word for Jesus Christos, the two words Jesus Christ, has a gematria of 888. The gematria for the word fish, ichthus, is 1,224. Anyway, the number of words in that genealogy is 72. All of these are divisible by seven. Okay. Well, <laughs> except for the first one. It's 72, which is eight times nine, which is really interesting. It's two times two times two times three times three. Not a big deal, but that's how many words are there. The number of nouns, divisible, the total number of nouns divisible by seven, 56. The, the Greek word the occurs 56 times. The different forms of the word the is seven. I can explain what that is. Uh, like we have boy, boys, and we have, it's called declension, girl, girls, singular, plural. The nouns in Greek change forms a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And there's seven forms. Okay. The number of Greek words before the deportation was 49. Of those 49 words, the number of the words that begin with a vowel is 28. That begin with a consonant is 21. The number of letters in that 49 words is 266. Of those 266 letters, the number of vowels is 140. The number of consonants is 126. The number of words that occur more than once is 35. The number of words that occur once is 14. The number of nouns is 42. The uh, number of words which are not nouns is 7. The number of nouns that are proper names is 35. The number of male names, 28. The number of times these male names occur is 56. And then the gematria of the word Babylon is 7. That's extremely difficult to do. Mm -hmm. to, uh, there we go. It's very difficult to do mathematically. I tried to do something like this. I got stuck after the third level. <laughs> Seriously, I did. And I'm not dumb. And uh, That's debatable, though. <laughs> hey, hey, I heard that. Are you and, getting uh, all this, Morgan? Are you memorizing all of this? This will be on the test. He's like screenshotting the... Okay. Uh, there well, are I can, easier, I can there release are these. Ways, I can, but this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I got to release this on the website so you guys can go to it. But here's some more. Uh, the account of Jesus' birth, right? This is in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. The number of words, 161. Number of letters, 896. So all these are divisible by seven. Of the 161 words that occur, 105 forms are there. Of those 105 forms, the number of verbs uh, is 35. The gematria value of the 161 words is divisible by seven. The gematria value of all the letters divisible by seven. Uh, the six read words here are found nowhere else in Matthew. In other words, in that genealogy, six words appear only there, and their value is divisible by seven. The total letters of the six words 
is divisible by seven, as are the number of proper names, number of the letters of these seven names. Emmanuel occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. The gematria is 644. Speaking of Joseph, the number of words the angel uses is 77. Uh, the gematria of those 77 words is divisible by seven. Now, you know, there's more. I can go through more things like this, okay? I think uh, I'll do one more for fun. Just for fun. From the issuing of it, this is uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, 70 weeks. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Hmm. Okay? That's when the Messiah will be cut off. So the 69 weeks of, they're of years. That's what it means. And um, the week of years is called the Shebuim. That's how they talked. Seven weeks. Well, they meant years. It's like we say, yeah, beat him till he's black and blue. It's a phrase. It's an, it's an idiom. Okay. Mm-hmm. Until the Messiah is cut off. <clears throat> they used a 360-day cycle, not a 365. That's another topic, which is really interesting. That's where we get 360 degrees in a circle. Okay. But nevertheless. Um, whoops. When you take the number of years that those 69 weeks are, all you do is take the years times the days, and you get 172,880 days. And it's you'll notice um, it's from the decree Uh, the decree, where's it? I have it, supposed to have it listed. There, 25. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. It'll be seven, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Saying how many years? Mm-hmm. The decree, they know for a fact. March 14th, dang it, 445 BC. March 14th, that's interesting. Yes, March 14th, 445. Why, is that your birthday? No, because that's today. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> oh, man, that is cosmic. Hi, Dave. Right. Oh, I didn't get that. That's right. Okay. Wow. Woo. Okay. That's funny. Divine order. I tell Divine you. order. That's right. God has his way of doing things. So they know archaeologically exactly the date. Guess what happens when you add 173,880 days to March 14th, 445 B.C.? You get the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Wow. God, he knows what he's doing. It's all just made up. (laughs) Or, or Morgan, uh, there's a simple way. (laughs) Now, this is actually a great detail. I mean, it just shows the the depths of the issue. But um, just from a simple, if you you haven't, if you didn't remember all of that, when someone makes a statement like, you know, what about the lost books of the Bible? I mean, just take a look at that statement. The lost books of the Bible, the phrase itself presupposes that Mm -hmm. these books are part of the Bible when that's right. the very thing that they're demonstrating. So don't, don't feel like you're pushed in the corner as though you need to demonstrate that they're in the Bible. They're the ones making the claim. And most people who use that are just parroting somebody else. And right. so it'd be interesting to put them on the run and have them demonstrate that these quote lost books were supposed to be in the Bible to begin with. Exactly. And you'll find historically there's no foundation for that whatsoever. And most people who ask won't even know where to begin once you turn the tables on them. Yeah, and that's good. And that was going to be one of the, the the last questions that I asked. And um, I, I think you you do make a a good point. I did. I you know Jay Warner Wallace says the best type of 
we have an investigatable faith. And what I appreciate about that is that we don't have to tell people, well, because I said so, you know, you can send people on a mission to search for themselves. It's just needing, wanting to know how much you need to know to kind of engage people so that you're not just dismissing them because, well, it's the Bible, you know, um, but, you know, really kind of being able to give people um, legitimate answers. But um, I just discovered... I'm going to pronounce Gamantria, you said? Gamantria. Gamantria um, last week. Um, so um, I'd love to hear a resource where maybe I could explore that a little bit more because I am very interested in that. But Just look up Gamantria on the web on Google. You'll okay. find a lot of stuff. Bible, Gamantria, and you'll find also. And uh, the guy who really, oh, what's his name? Panin. Panin. In the 1800s, he was a brilliant mathematician. He's the guy who out of these things and patterns and it goes exceedingly deep uh the patterns some of them i think much i don't get it i'm not a good mathematician like he was but some of them are like oh my goodness and out of the, the things out of matthew i showed you yeah, he discovered those got you i will definitely look into that sure. the, the well, one yeah please well morgan just also i uh, just to be a little more practical too because that all again all that stuff is awesome but it will, it will very rarely you'll have the opportunity to kind of go through all of this with people. Right. A really good book to get to help you practice navigating conversations, especially when you hear things like what about the lost books of the Bible? You know, all these basic questions that skeptics will ask is the book Tactics by Greg Kokel. Okay. It's a very easy to read book, but teaches you how to uh, navigate through a conversation, ask questions, you know, shift the burden of proof, not putting all the weight on yourself you know, for answering all the questions and things like that. Tactics. It is a immensely helpful book that teaches you how to talk and argue in a skillful way um, while not being disingenuous, but teaching you how to think and really making right. the other person kind of think for themselves and not just uh, you're there answering all their questions. But definitely this whole stuff with the, you know, prophecy and all these things within scripture, they all do have their place. Um, but just when, within a practical setting, uh, right. it's not all the time you'll have the opportunity to go through all of these things. That's good. And could you just, uh, would you mind spelling his last name? Sure. Kokel is K-O-U-K-L. You could buy that on Kindle, I think, for like either five ninety nine or nine ninety nine. Awesome book if you're doing like a, you know, a book study with a group of people, like a small group or something, or just your own personal study. Great resource. Great. And so I, and this will be my last question. And I thank you guys so much. Again, I'll, I, I pray God will, and I'll be on next Thursday as well. Um, and you already kind of speaking to this and maybe this book tactics will also do that. But I was going to ask, how do you defend the faith to people who don't honor the Bible as a true source? So, you know, some people say you, you reference it in the Bible, but I don't view that as a valid reference point. Is there a way to kind of engage people in those conversations when you can't automatically start with the Bible as a point yeah. of reference, if that, if that makes sense? I, I think just because someone says you can't start with the Bible doesn't mean that you can't start with the Bible. <laughs> that's, like coming to, that's like coming to a gunfight and they say, wait a minute, you can't use a gun. Who says? Right, uh, right. The, the Bible provides for you the foundation for your worldview. It's the lens through which you reason and understand the world. So basically right. what they're saying is don't come at me with your ultimate commitment. And so... Mm -hmm. You could say the same thing. Then don't come at me with yours. We're going to be at an impasse here because it, mm -hmm. they're speaking as though they themselves do not have a Bible, namely their own ultimate authority. 
The reality mm -hmm. is everyone has ultimate authorities. You just should be honest about yours. It's the word of God. And mm -hmm. you need to expose what their ultimate authority is and tear it to shreds because the Bible says that we tear down arguments. So we do not move the Bible aside. Mm -hmm. We stand mm -hmm. firm on it, know it well, and challenge the assumptions and, and you know worldview perspective of that particular unbeliever. Make him defend his worldview. And you can engage in apologetics without throwing away really the thing we're supposed to be standing on, which is the truth of God's word. Your foundation. Also, Morgan, I am um, in the other outside uh, Google Hangouts chat. I gave you a link to another book called Always Ready by Greg Bonson. Yes, great book. Link right there. And uh, it's really good because what they'll do, what the atheists will always do is they'll try to pull you away from 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 your side into some yeah. kind of neutrality or that they'll try to get you on their side and the, and the thing that bonson always taught was neutrality is a myth okay mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. you have to you know you have to be stubborn basically and, and tell them i'm not going to go into the neutral okay i'm not going to give up my my uh my scriptures you know, I, I, the thing is, is that you have to, you have to uh, prove to me, uh, or, or you have to uh, show to me that your your logic is valid yeah. first before you even decide to even, you know, question my my faith. Um, so you know, it, there's there's a lot of things to go to, but anyways, uh, the link is on the outside chat of the um, of the uh, the Google Hangouts there. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so, all so much. I really appreciate it. Good. And one more last thing. We're just going to throw a little bit of, of uh, sprinkling on the topping here. Um, God <laughs> says in Isaiah fifty five eleven that his word will not come back empty without accomplishing what he desires. Yes. So even though they'll say, I don't want to hear the word of God, speak it still. Don't be yes. pushy about it, but still use the word of God. Well, the Bible says, blah, 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 blah. Let the word of God accomplish its power. <clears throat> Never give it up. And say, I won't use the Bible to defend God. He has yeah. spoken. And that's what I'll do with, the, with atheists. I'll say, look, God has revealed himself in two ways. Well, three ways. Through nature, through the word of God, the Bible, and through the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And um, I presuppose these, work with those. And uh, I, use, I quote the scriptures anyway because they have power. All right? Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. I'm about ready to start up the, uh, the after show, guys. So I'm I'm gonna go ahead and get out and uh, give you the link, Matt. Uh, right. If you want, I'll either email it to you or it'll no, be on side chat, whatever. I'm gonna check on my wife though. I'm gonna see what's going on and make sure she's Roger that. But yeah, just let, let you guys know. And Morgan, you can always join up here on my my chat also or my hangout. Um, but there's um, the council is what we have after after here for like an hour. And okay. so you're more than welcome to join in and along with um, um, Pepper, Eli. Elias, yeah, Elias, Kat, all the other people there. Um, I'm going to go ahead and set up the uh, the um, the hangout there. So right. thanks. Email me the link, Matt, please. <clears throat> okay, I'll email it to you too. So folks, um, we're going to close it out. And Eli, thanks for coming in and doing this again. Love to okay. sit back, listen to you talk, man. You're doing great. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. I like it. You look better than me too. I'm I'm old. You're just you know, you're young and stuff like that. But um, anyway, good stuff, man. Good stuff. I think Eli should be on more often. And Eli, Discord, go to discord.com, sign up. Trust me, you're going to want to get into the in there because there's some really good conversations we can have. Okay. Okay. It's a good place. All right.
Okay. I'll check it out. All right. Well, take care. I'm going to sign off now. I got to do some other stuff before I go to bed. So. All right. All right. God See bless, you. brother. God bless, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.